BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Here, Mark. <laughs> What's up with your bad self? What is up? What is up? What, 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 what? <clears throat> What's up with your bad self, Mark? Are oh, you doing it on there again now? Uh, you see, the thing is, as soon as I do that, all I can think of, and I've been doing this all week, I'm going to have a massage. Uh, it's the best line in that film. I just, I'm going to have a massage. Oh, it's, oh, it's <laughs> Okay. I was, I was thinking. It it's was, who? Stephen Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I suddenly realised what it was because that could have been a Ray Winston. Yeah, but that's the thing. Stephen Graham's sort of doing Ray Winston as the uh, But I just think it's like, now, if, any, if ever anybody does something good, which is the thing in the film, I'm just going to go, I'm going to have a massage. Yeah. Well, I think that's very good. And. <laughs> I think if the question was who had the most fun in Rocket Man, it, might, it might be that it's Stephen Graham, given that he was probably there just for a couple of days to do his to do his scenes. And I think it, I bet you rocking it. I bet you he was also going Dexter. Can I just do it again? I'll just do it again. Just one more. Just one more. I'm gonna have a massage. Yeah, it's very good. Anyway, we, <laughs> I think that's the sort of thing that there should be a thing that in when that line happens, that the whole audience gets up and applauds, or the whole audience is offered a massage <laughs> as an extra bonus. If they're sitting in one of those special seats. I was listening randomly to um, the Monty Python's, whichever album it is, mm-hmm. which every time it goes, and now a massage from the Swedish Prime Minister. <laughs> yeah, it's a 30-second joke, isn't it? It's a 30-second game that they play, you know, five or six times, and it becomes funnier through repetition. Our whole career has been summed up exactly. in that sentence. Repetition is a form of comedy. Well, unsu- repetition is a form of comedy. Okay, sorry. I Thank you. Like, yeah, you just that. leave it to go. Try it again. Repetition is a form of comedy. Simon? Yes? What's the secret of comedy? Timing? Timing. <laughs> that worked for you? It did. Although it wasn't as good as Philip Glass, which is still the best joke you've ever told me. Knock, knock. Who's there? Knock, knock. And then I've just done the punchline. You can't do it now. It's no, like it's got, I feel like doing it. Okay, go on. Knock, knock. Who's there? Knock, knock. Who's there? Knock, knock. Who's there? Knock, knock. Who's there? Philip Glass. Very good. But you have to do it. So I mean, the first time you did it, it actually went on quite a long time. Know, that's the, was, the longer you can keep that going. It, and also, the more you can get the rhythm into it, the funnier it is. Yeah, it was like a kind of a throwaway edition of that particular joke. The, the least surprising email of the week. Go on. From Imogen Crump. Ah, at the University of Melbourne. Because we brought up... Well, let's... Yes, fine. Here we go. Hello, yeah. Imogen. Dear Bill and Ted. So does, is it, can Imogen is still listening, even though she's on the other side of the world. And the last time she wrote in, it's because we'd scared her. Having fallen behind in terms of podcasts... Oh, she's not. Okay, fine. Thanks, Imogen. I just made I've it... moved on to other things now. I just made it past the sarcastic baby, Crow, <laughs> and had arrived at the Bondi Rooster when I received an email from my former boss, Robin, a.k.a. the Puppet Master, with the instruction that I needed to listen to last week's episode. As a diligent former employee, I did as instructed and skipped ahead. All started off normally enough with the Oi Mark, Oi Simon banter before moving on to Simon's interview with Keanu. And then my small mind was blown in a totally quantum way, which I can only write as a list. So, one, not only does Keanu now know about the existence of our It's Quantum Baby site, but he also described it as nice. (laughs) But it was the way he said nice Nice. in a way that only Keanu Reeves could say it, which made it sound really, really cool. Point number two. 
He then went on to actually read out the front page. Those were words I wrote. He read my words. So you've screenwritten for for a Kinanu. 3.3. Simon actually said my name to Keanu, which means he kind of knows my name. Does that mean we're dating? Uh, yes. Yes. And point four, in the same fashion that you have celebrity non-endorsements for the podcast awards, surely I can count this as one too. Just a little small line down the bottom of the page as kind of endorsed by, by Keanu. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. As you have probably guessed from the above, I found the whole thing very exciting and remember very little else about the latest John Wick instalment or what gestalt actually means. But I wanted to say thank you very much for completing the circle of It's Quantum Baby and returning the quote to its owner with a lot more heavy science attached. And just an extra element to add to your strong line of Australian fauna noises, I wanted to send over the territorial possum. This sound is familiar to most Australians but can scare the socks off our international visitors. As possums are nocturnal, you usually hear this when it's pitch black outside and you're just starting to doze off. When suddenly... That is fabulous. That is really and weird. That's a st- beautiful stereo recording. After it was, yeah, because it was moving across. It was that, like Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, that was something else altogether. Well, you can imagine. I mean, that sounded as though someone was breaking wind. Very, very, very close. Anyway, that was the territorial possum. How long do you think it'll take before that's arranged to music? It is fantastic. Can we can we hear it again? Because I couldn't quite... Is there a rhythm in there? It is a bit babadooky, and that was what that was what creeped uh, Imogen out that time that she was walking in the outback or something, listening to the podcast. Right now, it's over there. Yeah, if you're listening to this in mono, you're missing it. Oh, it's run over there, Russell, Russell, Russell. It does sound like it's got wind. It really does sound very, very strange, doesn't it? I think we should have some territorial possums over here. Anyway. Um, Imogen, thank you very much, and it's very nice to be a part of the the academic life of the University of Melbourne. Uh, who's this? Before we go on, because what? she mentioned the podcast, can we just say congratulations to the Brexit cast? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and all the other nominees in the Listeners' Choice Awards, and uh, especially us. Well, no, I meant to everybody else. Yeah, but you know, spirit of generosity goes so far, but particularly to Brexit cast because they are worthy winners of the People's Choice Award. <laughs> what are they going to do with their piece of plastic? Are they going to hand it round from listener to listener? They're going to take so. it round Europe, I imagine. That would be very good. Actually, Katya Adler could then hand it to all the European leaders that she does interviews with. Yeah, that, and take, take photographs of it. That would be great. Okay, so this is, we're laying down the gauntlet to the get a photograph. quite correctly triumphant Brexit cast yeah. team. Get that award and pass it around Europe. We want to see uh, a whole bunch of European leaders. We want to see Juncker holding, holding it. We want holding it up. <laughs> yes, that's right. Merkel, hold this Merkel. plastic. Right. Oi, Merkel. Oi, no. Angela. <laughs> Macron, do what you're told. <laughs> see the play. <laughs> Petit peu.
<laughs> Thank you very much. Anyway, let's lay down... OK, because they, Katya or Adam Fleming, because he's also out in Brussels, he seems to just have a lot of drinks by the time. <laughs> Not alcoholic drinks. Anyway, so between them, we want that photograph, uh, please, of yeah. at least a European leader with your award. Or can maybe Laura Koonsberg can get it, you know, in front of a, a top... A top British politician, or just 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 a like, British just, politician, <laughs> or even yeah, just a British. But in case there aren't any top ones, sneak left. it in from the edge of frame. You know, when doing one of those kind of, you know, just very very gently, just edge it in from the edge of frame. It'd be quite good if she was holding it in her hand. She's interviewing Jacob Rees Mogg, and she's just bringing it in slightly. And Jacob goes, "What's that?" And she said, "Oh, no, 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 you can't have it, mate. This is ours. ours. Back off, <laughs> Mister Rees Mogg." <laughs> Anyway, Robin's getting nervous. <clears throat> there was nothing political in that. It was completely straight up, completely neutral. Why don't we give? Fully... Him, why don't we give him something to sweat about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Andrea Smith, I usually listen to your show a few days after its broadcast due to my working weird shifts as a midwife. Last Tuesday, however, I was not at work as it was part two of my root canal. Oh, horrible. Part one had been an experience I never wanted to repeat, yeah. so I'd made a music playlist to drown out all the sounds you do not wish to hear going on in your mouth during such a procedure. Have you had root canal surgery? I have not. It's just, You know, it's the way they do it is that they, they make a hole and then they literally, they've got this thing, it's like a kind of flexible, uh, not like a screwdriver, you know, a, what you, a bore. A bore. Okay. You know, thing you make a hole in the wall. And they kind of put it in and then they twist it and it bores down into the hole mm. that the root was in. And literally, it is like somebody is building an Ikea wardrobe inside your head. Yeah, well, I... But have, with pain. Yes. Fortunately, dental workers and dental professionals are so much better than they were in the old days. When In the old days, my dental professional gave me mercury to take home and play with. Yeah. Really? My, I had a school dentist who refused to use anaesthetic. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was her trick. Yeah, that's right, because that, that's for that's for softies. That's Thanks for so Fotherington Thomases. Anyway, the playlist was wah-wah pedal heavy, mostly punk and metal classics, with liberal use of the fuzzbox, including, of course, the band Fuzzbox. fuzzbox. One of the songs was Evangeline by the Icicle Works. Oh. The songs got me through. That and splendid injectable ana analgesia the like of which was unknown even to me as an analgesia-using midwife. Don't ask. <laughs> I won't. I was on the bus home when I thought I'd plug in and listen to your show to reward myself for not sobbing all over the dentist's chair as I'd done the previous time. And what should I hear? A but... very familiar song came over the airwaves and the strangest thing happened. My shoulders immediately hunched up. My hands gripped the seat in front of me and I was left with the strangest taste of bleach and cloves in my mouth. <laughs> Your playing of Evangeline by the Icicle Works had given me a flashback. So thanks for playing a not very well-known song that I love very much in your show, and sorry to those sitting near me who had to witness what looked like a strange spasm attack on the E3 bus to Ealing last Tuesday. And a big was-up to my husband Richard, who introduced me to your wonderful witterings and who has heard this story already, possibly several times, due to my age and forgetfulness, but never on the radio. It's, wow. The cloves thing is weird, isn't it? Because that, all, that always reminds me of Marathon Man, 
because he's got you know he's got the 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 bendy scalpel not the bendy scalpel you know the thing the pointy scalpel in one hand and he's got the bottle of oil of cloves in the other and he says pain relief is it safe is it safe the and abyss I, and it's oh uh, Sam, age 32 and two months, MA in Urban History. I moved to write by your brief reference to Arnold Ridley, a.k.a. Private Godfrey of Dad's Army, That's right. on last week's podcast. And what did you say about his sister Dolly? He's always talking about his sister Dolly's upside-down cake. She made too many upside-down yeah, cakes. Right. She never, she's you never make the right amount. The question of his age reminded me of a touching detail that listeners may be interested in hearing. In Branded, an episode from Series 3 of Dad's Army... Godfrey is revealed to have been a conscientious objector during World War One. That's right. Ridley was That's the right. only member of the cast to have served in both world wars and apparently suffered from terrible nightmares about his wartime experiences. This gives his performance an additional layer of poignancy that reminds us how close Dad's army was to the generations of trauma surrounding 20th century war. On age details, Ridley was 72 when Dad's army started. His character Godfrey was born in 1871. So it would have been about 68 at the outbreak of World War II. Anyway, Sam knows his dad's arm. That's very good. That's right. I, I think I had, I had somewhere, I had known that about Arnold Ridley. And there's also, because the thing is, he always carries the medical box, doesn't he? Yes. Because he is the, he's the, he's most, the medic guy. He's the most, that's right. He's he the doesn't most have benign. a gun. No, that's right. He carries the medical box. Uh, who's this? Nick, Nick Eddards. Hello, Nick. Oh, this is Eddards without the W again. Medium term listener, second time emailer, and I still don't have a W in my surname. You remember that? Because it was so it was a mistake. It was a typo. It was a typo. It's this whole bottle tuttle business. In last week's podcast, and in relation to the comedic qualities of cakes, Mark made mention of Arnold Ridley and that he was still appearing in Dad's Army at the age of 80. I wonder if Mark was aware that Ridley was a prolific playwright and many of his works have been adapted for film. His best-known work is probably The Ghost Train, which has been adapted for screen several times in English and foreign languages, the most notable being the 1941 and very English version starring Arthur Askey. Down with the Nazis a bit, is a bit of a plot spoiler for it, though. <laughs> Your faithful, sarcastic Australian crow wrangler, Nick Eddards. <laughs> I thought the ghost train was far more recent than that. I didn't think it was... 19... Anyway, what do I know? I, sh I shall bow to Nick's superior wisdom. Yeah, because he sent in the, the sarcastic... Uh, Here's a uh, sentence we've never had before. I write, This is Hannah Jo McKinley. I write in defence of Barney's great adventure. Oh, Someone yeah. has to... It was my first ever cinema. I was basically being rude about it. It is one of those awful cinematic yeah. experiences. Can I tell you a weird thing before you go ahead? Yeah, go on. One of the actresses in one of the big movies out this week, Z Father, was the voice of Barney the Dinosaur. Really? Yeah. There we go. That's an amazing thing. I know. Kate and Diva's dad apparently was the voice of Barney the Dinosaur. Really, really irritating. Mention it only in passing. I write in defence of Barney's great adventure. It was my first ever cinema experience and I was three. I remember it vividly, or at least I remember it through vivid family retellings of the event. The film features a truly fantastic sequence, sequence in which a dog, a dog plays the guitar with its tail. I am reminded by my father every time we attend the cinema that when three-year-old me saw this feat of canine musical dexterity... I burst into an outrageously long and loud laughing fit. Apparently, I giggled and giggled continually until the packed Glasgow Cinema Hall had all joined in with tears of mirth. It's a truly <laughs> terrific film for all toddling tykes. I chortlingly request a retraction of your harsh condemnation 
of this joyous piece of cinema. Love the show. You get me through times when laughter doesn't come so easily. Thank you very much for a nice email, Hannah, and I still think it sucks. And I'd like to confirm that I was correct. Uh, uh, early life of Caitlin Deva, um, blah, 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 blah. Her family then moved to Dallas where her father was given the role of the voice of Barney the Purple Dinosaur when she enrolled at the Dallas Young Actors Studio. So there we go. I didn't make it up. What's dad's name, does it say? Um, it almost certainly does. As if like you've that. suffered the purgatory. I mean, is he the voice and is he in there? It, or say, it says the voice of, so I imagine it's in... So the, it would have been someone else who was in. Okay, so uh, Kathy and Tim Diva. And Tim Diva was given the role of the voice of Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Okay, let's assume it's someone else who actually had to be in that thing. Is it? Was it always live? Or was there? Is it, it wasn't ever a cartoon. It was always a live one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's one. right. Oh, yeah. there we go. Yep. Full of the most nauseating children. <laughs> Only the most nauseating. Hey, children. Barney, can I be a part of your party? <laughs> is there? I don't. I don't think I ever saw it. I. I think I'm right in saying that it was used as an interrogation technique. Wasn't it? There was a whole big um, what, newspaper by thing. Purple dinosaur. The di- no, not interview by purple dinosaur. The song, the Barney the dinosaur song, was used as um, as an interrogation technique, being played over and over again to break people down. Nineties um, parents have already had that. I've just got time for this very quickly. Dave Parsons, following on from your very in-depth debate about the pronunciation of submariner, submariner. Yep. I write with an American viewpoint. Oh, is it going to be... Uh, is Submariner in America? As a Brit living in New York, I fill my time at the weekend volunteering at the intrepid Air, Sea and Space Museum. I'm often found in the control room of the Growler Submarine, listening to people bang their heads and <laughs> learning new swear words in different languages. <laughs> I have to change my language depending on who I'm speaking to, as American submariners don't react well to being called submariners. submariners. Uh, pronounced as the rest are. of the world seems to. American submariners see the word... Submariners as saying they're below surface mariners, as of course they physically are, but in a ranking sense, which they are not. Yes, exactly. I therefore have to switch between no, not as not as in below surface mariners, but below surface mariners. Yeah, between the two, depending on the nationality of who I'm speaking to. If you ever want to do a broadcast from New York, we have a couple of film locations dotted around. Uh, Fleet Week would be a good time, as we have screenings on the flight deck, including Top Gun. You can stay at ours if you top and tail. That would be lovely. No. Top and tail is when you head, head, heads to toes. Uh, exactly. So, and it happening. Thank you very much. Hot bedding is the other one, isn't it? Uh, we're not doing that either. Here we go. On with the show. Enough. We're here for a couple of hours of very fine film conversation. As oh. from... What? So, so you've upped the game. I just thought it was a couple of hours of conversation. No. It's very fine. be very fine. Very fine. Okay, I'll just... Okay. And this is the last time we're on at two o'clock, because from next week we start at three o'clock. Okay. Very important. Is it all right if I turn up at two anyway? You can well, no, you can turn up same any time you like, as long as you're ready to go at the start of the show. Then that's fine. You do yeah. all your work. Yeah, that'd be good. I mean, my whole life revolves around being here at two. So, speaking of which, I've got an email here. Yes, which says, "Dear being frank and being really, really frank, I write with a request for a very special what's up." I'm a long-term listener. In fact, I can remember the exact moment I first heard your dulcet tones. It's the 18th of April, 2008. Tuning into Radio 5, I remember exactly the first sentence I heard Mark utter. Really? And the sentence was, I don't know what it is. (laughs) That sounds right. That sounds like me. I should say, by the way, that this email is from John Robbins, who is half of Ellis James and John Robbins, who are... Taking over. ...doing the show one till three. Yeah. 
next week. They're not doing this show. No, not they're doing a different show. I mean, show. no one. Yes. Well, obviously. No, no, no one. Could, yeah. They're doing a different show. Doing the warm-up. But yeah, <laughs> He was talking... Do you know what film you were talking about? Are we calling them the support act? Is that what you're saying? No, that would be very disrespectful. <laughs> um, so, what did you nearly say? Like, then I talked to Christian. Do you know what... So you said, I don't know what it is. It's yes. 2008. Do you know what film you're talking about? No. He was talking about There Will Be Blood, and it's... Oh, OK, yes, that's... That, yeah, that that, this enthusiasm, mixed with a humble lack of certainty, was exactly the kind of film critic I could get on board with. I then recognised his voice, from TV introductions to all manner of rude and gory films <laughs> that I'd secretly recorded without my mum's knowledge as a teenager. Many years ago. That was... Can I just say, those rude and gory film introductions were done in the period that you like to refer to as my wilderness years. The wilderness years, that's right. In fact, I like to refer to as my television years. Rude and gory years. Rude and gory years, yeah. Well, 11 years later, and you're both still a special part of my week. Through Sex in the City, Who's Driving the Boat, Shut Up Buttwad, Fart Gun, Sanjeev, Ben and Edith. I even once sent in a little picture of me listening outside a shell garage in Wittering. (laughs) Anyway, I hope you won't mind me thanking you for the inspiration you provided when some years ago I started my own radio show. Simon's Greek chorus, always remembering the listener who hasn't seen the film Mark is referring to, was always in my mind when we veered too far off track. But also the respect Mark gives his listeners by not patronising us or oversimplifying his reaction. But most of all, it was the chemistry of two friends being no different with each other on air than if there was no microphone at all that provided such a great example for me when I too started broadcasting with my friend. We even got a shout-out on your show from listener Susie a year ago, very movingly speaking about the importance of our two podcasts to people's mental health. So, says John Robbins, here's the thing. I wondered if you could give us a wass-up and wish Ellis and me good luck as we start in a new job next week. Not only is it in your neck of the woods, it's your actual actual woods. (laughs) As we'll be presenting the show before yours. And wondered if you could find room on Broadcaster's Buttress or on Podcaster's Pew for a couple of new members. Ellis might be somewhat bemused as to why his usually adept co-DJ is uncharacteristically nervous or distracted but I will be remembering that time I sat in my car hearing Mark say, I don't know what it is, (laughs) and thinking what a strange and wonderful thing life is as we hand over to you in your new slot. So two questions. Firstly, I mean, you'll be brilliant. Um, It'll be perfectly great, and the listening figures will soar. Um, So uh, so two things. is, is Is their show coming from here, from this studio? No. No, from, from, the, from the from the building, is, okay. Our studio. Oh, fine. So, so we're fine. they have the slightly smaller studio oh, around see, the corner. Okay, but they can graduate. For today's studio, yeah, or something yeah. Like. And they'll and they'll be brilliant, and we are delighted to be the you know, support acts. Often go on after. I mean, I've played gigs at places like you know. There's a there's a jazz place in uh, Camden where you play ten till twelve, and then the band comes afterwards. Is generally considered to be the support act, and maybe they're just telling that. To okay, us. Well, so maybe we're, so we're the we're the with the with the after with the after party act. Um, neck of the woods. What? What is that? A wood. What is a neck of a wood? Is it, presumably that's the bit where it narrows down. Well, then why in our neck of the woods? I I, 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 I am not a forester. No, I know, but I just you know a lot of things, and I just wondered. Do you not use the phrase? I do use it, but it's just it's because since since that lovely joke about not just in the neck of your, not just in your neck of the woods, but woods. Actually, your wood singular. Yeah, yeah. and I was just thinking, what what is the neck of a wood? Someone will tell us. Okay. Anyway, uh, to John and to Ellis, we look forward to see. We won't see you next week, which is when they start the show, because we inconveniently have gone on holiday. We've gone away. Yes, we should, we, we should make clear 
that we had decided to go away that week long before it was announced. Yeah, we haven't taken umbrage. It's not like, oh, fine, you start, we're going away. Edith and Clarice will be here talking Godzilla amongst many. We just wanted it to start with the top team before we get back to wrecking things. Enough enough humility. You can never have enough humility. Uh, Box office top ten on the way. First of all, uh, dear Trotsky and Lenin, this says, like many students across the country, I'm currently suffering within the melting pot of exams. On Tuesday, I sat my A-level history exam on Tsarist and Communist Russia, which, to put it lightly, would not be my specialist subject on Mastermind. (laughs) By the time I got to the last question, which was about the similarities and differences between Stalin and Khrushchev's leadership, riveting stuff, I was in a bit of a pickle on what to write. I do like that expression. Bit of a bit pickle. Of pickle. My gran always used to say, I think you're in a bit of a pickle. Yeah. You don't hear it enough. But here's Katie on this email saying that she was in a bit of a pickle as to what to write. And then came a ray of happiness as whilst writing about the role of General Zukov. Hello, Jason. I saw an <laughs> opening. Throughout my GCSEs, I was always too scared to drop a hello, hello to, to Jason, Jason Isaacs. Isaacs. But due partly to the fact I didn't have a clue what else to write. And also due to Jason's wonderful performance in The Death of Stalin. Deserving a mention, I added a brackets and hello to Jason Isaacs was in the bracket. The trouble was, I didn't stop there. And throughout the remainder of the essay, I continued to add brackets just relating to the death of Stalin, (laughs) such as whenever I mentioned Khrushchev, I wrote, hello to Steve Buscemi. And for Beria, hello to Simon Russell Beale. (laughs) Trust me, I'm aware of the irony of remembering the actors who played the historical figures and yet not being able to remember anything that they actually did. So whilst I must accept some of the blame for my lack of revision on the subject, I think so. I am instead going to put my failure totally on you two for your in-jokes making my exam points even more convoluted than they were before. We can only hope for a lenient, wittertainy examiner who will give out lots of bod marks. This is BOD, which is benefit of the doubt. Oh, yes, that's right. You said is that yes. from last year? Or the, yeah, OK. BOD. But to be honest, if the only thing that you remember, if you're comparing Khrushchev and Stalin, is the entire cast... Of death of Stalin, you might need a lot more than a Wittertainy example. Although it is worth saying that, as Jason said, that although Death of Stalin is a comedy, it's more factual than you'd think. Yeah, and they do manage to get that fantastic combination of it being factual and funny without actually... Uh, while it's, to, while still of, horrifying. Yeah, without trying to sort of make it in any way uh, sugarcoat the pill. Yeah, yeah, no, the pill is not sugarcoated at all. Uh, you can get in touch with the show, uh, and that's mayo at bbc.co.uk. Box office top 10 at 12 beats. Which I really liked. I thought it was um, you know, a great evocation of, firstly, of the dog end of 1990s rave culture, which, of course, I wasn't part of, but the Criminal Justice Act I was involved in reporting on because of its effect on video nasties. It's a, it's a story about two... Uh, t- it's a coming-of-age story about two boys who are about to kind of go their separate ways and having one last hurrah in this in this illegal rave and it manages to mix the personal and the political really well i thought it was terrific and it particularly worked for me because i don't know anything about rave culture i do know about the criminal justice act but i don't know about rave culture so i thought it worked very well stephen gray on the email mark and simon hopefully the top 10 manages to include number 12 this week well, hey we can accommodate any number yeah. at all or in some cases no number at all i went to see this on saturday as i found i had a couple of kid free hours and to my surprise beats was being shown in my local multiplex and at a decent 
time. So well done to the Odeon Dundee. This film had caught my interest as I was 19 in 1994 and was part of the Scottish clubbing scene. Oh, there we go. It's never been portrayed before on the big screen, so with a bit of trepidation, I gave the film a chance. I wasn't disappointed. The story is engaging and shows the trials and tribulations of friendship. The cast are fantastic. Even though it's about two friends, the entire cast seem like real people who are just trying to live their lives as best they can in post-Thatcher Scotland. The script helps this as you believe in the characters. However... The part that meant the most to me was the clubbing scenes. The director managed to recreate what it was like back then and seeing it on the big screen with music that I can remember dancing to, I was reminded of being 19 again and I have to admit, I got lost in my memories while the film was playing and found myself shedding a tear for a time that I had forgotten. For this reason alone, it will be in my top five of the year. I can see myself watching this again and again in years to come. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Sean in Altrincham, like the protagonists, I was just getting into the rave scene in 1994. So to say it connected with me is an understatement. The choice of music was spot on. Choosing real underground bangers and chill out gems. No clangers. That's right. Who's All like, bangers, no clangers. So it's like a wheels of steel DJ line. Rather than the standard rave compilation fair, everything about the sound production was perfect, depicting tunage of a large, in capital letters, variety, <laughs> spewing from outdoor boom boxes in the car park to large-scale warehouse acoustics. Lastly, the final rave scenes felt like they, they took an age to kick in, but when they did, I was gurning like a loon, beaming with delight as those endorphins kicked in like they haven't for quite some time, and it took everything in my power not to pump my fists in the air and shake the hand of the bloke next to me and ask if I could have a sip of his water. Says Sean in Altrincham because that's where he gets his his enjoyment now. I mean, I think what's a glass of water. Thank you very much. But what's really interesting is that if you remember it, and again, Simon uh, Paul here said, you know, I think it's part of our production team. Our production team, our top production team, uh, said, you know, it gets all the details of that stuff right. And even if you weren't there, which I wasn't because I was too old, and also it's just it's not it's not my thing. I understood it because that sequence when they're in the rave, the film does the thing that film is meant to do, which is take you inside something which you don't understand and make you experience it, which I think it does. The, uh, the Curse of La Llorona is at number 10. The the knack joke about that film is the most interesting thing about it. Tolkien is at nine. Mm, you want more from a story about the man who wrote the Lord of the Rings movies. We've had a few emails from people defending it, saying, look, it's better than you think it is. And, and uh, you know, I... I'm glad that people are getting that out of it. I, I don't think it's terrible. I just thought it it felt very flat considering who we're writing about, who we're, we're watching a film about. Amazing Grace is at number eight. It's fantastic. And there's been a lot of discussion about why it was that Sidney Pollock did not, did not use clapperboards and why, therefore, the footage was unsynchronisable when it was first shot in the early 1970s. And one of the suggestions is that he, he didn't use it because he didn't want to um, to annoy, he didn't want to be, you know, be in the way of Aretha Franklin who was doing a performance. Interestingly enough, there's a documentary coming up that we're going to review in this show um, uh, about John McEnroe. Well, it's not really about John McEnroe, it's about filmmaking, in which you see them essentially just bumping a microphone very, very gently as you use it as a clapperboard. So there were ways of doing this without using clapperboards. Anyway... It's great the footage has now been rescued because it does put you inside that church and the performance is just breathtaking and you can you can smell the atmosphere in the church. And it, I think it's a really genuinely spiritual experience. Chris Trail in Leicester, unfussy, understated, 
and simply crafted footage, Amazing Grace is awe-inspiring. Even if you closed your eyes, it is unmistakably Aretha. Exquisite. The characters and wider congregation in the choir are amusing, quirky and hypnotic in their rhythm. Animation, singing and dancing. I loved it. It felt like a privilege. And Alexander Hamilton, uh, you know, leading the choir in really physical form is Alexander just... Alexander Hamilton. It's fan- yeah, but not that Alexander Hamilton, but another Alexander Hamilton is just brilliant. And in fact, although, you know, Aretha Franklin herself is an absolutely transfixing presence because she does look like she's on a spiritual journey. Alexander Hamilton is, every minute he's on screen, you just think, OK, that is the coolest person I've ever seen. Dumbo is at seven. Well, we have another Disney live-action remake of... That's hanging a, around a long time. No, it is. And they've, they've all done well. They, there's no question. I, you know, I, you, you, you kind of ask the, the question rhetorically, why do we need live-action versions of the cartoons? Well, the fact that Dumbo is still at number seven is the answer to that question. Longshot is at number six. Yeah, I mean, I really like Longshot because I... I hadn't. Expe- this is the Charlie's Throne and Seth Rogen. Yes, and um, you interviewed both of them. Yes, you ticked them off about the use of rock set. Rock set. Way, way too much rock set. Yeah, way too much rock set. But I mean, what I what I really liked about it is that it it got the balance between the sort of you know the the the, the more broad vulgar the falling downstairs comedy, and the idea that actually you did believe much of the whole thing was a fantastical invention. You kind of did believe in her as a presidential candidate and him as a, 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 you know, an edgy left field reporter who knew her when he was younger. And I I was thinking about this. The reason it's funny and the reason the jokes carry on being funny is because you like them and you like the idea of their interaction with each other and you kind of invest in them. And that, you know, I've, I've had this conversation, I've had this discussion quite a lot with filmmakers about whether or not films have to have somebody that you're rooting for. And I've always been of the opinion that you, you don't. There's no reason why you can't make a drama about people that you're not rooting for. But the fact is, there is something really primal about a film that gets you on board with somebody and makes you root for them. So even after years and years of, you know, of hearing myself say, well, why do you have to have, you know, a thing? Why, you know, why do you have to get behind it? The fact is, it just kind of works. It's like a piece of music can be brilliant without having a hummable tune. But you know what? A hummable tune, and incidentally, in Rocketman today, there's a reference to the, you know, the whistle test. The whistle test works. Yes, to be discussed later. Yeah. Paw Patrol Mighty Pups, is it number five? I don't understand because it's not a film as such. It's a, it's an expanded, although actually not very expanded, TV episode. But as I said, I saw it in a screening in which there was one critic had brought along their, 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 their young child who was completely in there with it. And because the, the, the sequence of it that's put, put, is only about 45, 50 minutes and then there's some other stuff... You know, it, it, maybe it's a primer, maybe it's a way in. I, the only thing I, I worry about is, could you not start with Mary Poppins? Could you not start with, you know, there's so there's so much that could get you into the cinema other than that. But Mike Shelton and Ellis Lloyd went to see Paw Patrol last weekend with a friend and her young son. I now know what it must be like experiencing Avengers Endgame, having never seen a Marvel movie before. <laughs> yeah, ex- I had okay, no idea yeah. what was going on. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. Why there were two mayors in the same town with a population of seven people, six dogs and a chicken. For a more objective view, four-year-old Paw Patrol superfan Ellis Lloyd 
sat there enraptured and code compliant for the entire film. Great. A big two thumbs up for the main feature. He became bored during the supplementary shorts. Whether that was because the popcorn and ice cream had run out, had run out is for debate. <laughs> uh, Tom in Finsbury Park. Having at least partial responsibility for my daughters, age two and five, means I rarely go to the cinema. I thought the release of Paw Patrol Mighty Pups might be a chance to change that, but sadly I was mistaken. I wouldn't say that Paw Patrol was a bad movie. I just wouldn't say it was a, a movie. movie at all. Exactly. Still. In a nutshell. My five-year-old liked it, so mm. what do I know? Yours, Phyllis. I mean, That's the thing. I think if they, if they like it, then... If you like, if your kids like the Paw Patrol TV show, there's no reason why they wouldn't like this because it's basically the TV show. It just happens to be on a bigger screen. And in fact... Some people nowadays have televisions that are, that are so big that there's not that much discernible difference between them and a, and a cinema anyway. The Hustle is at number four. Which is a shame because it should be at number 15. OK. Avengers Endgame is at three. Um, I like the fact that somebody has just compared Avengers Endgame to Paw Patrol Mighty Pups in terms of how much information do you have to have to get up to speed. Um, we've had so many stories... Uh, of people trying to avoid spoilers. There was a story that you said about somebody running in and shouting out the ending. And then there was a story in the press about some cinema showing the Spider-Man trailer ahead of the screening of Avengers Endgame with the Spider-Man trailer, which is absolutely full of spoilers because it comes after the thing. Um, but my assumption is that by now, anybody who was kind of in that desperate market has already seen Avengers Endgame. Because I know an awful lot of people went to see it the first weekend. I thought it was pretty good particularly considering how, you know, really not emotionally invested I am in in, in the uh, Avengers saga, I did find it very moving. And I thought it was, it, it did manage to concentrate on individual characters. Weirdly enough, Child 2 didn't agree. And, and no, he's much no, more, much more invested. Well, he's just wrong. Well, I, I invite you to have that conversation will, with him over the weekend, Simon. Uh, reminder that Taryn Edgerton is coming up the other side of the news. Pokemon Detective Pikachu is at number two. I've got some emails here. Rachel in West Yorkshire, age 26, she says, uh, This morning I packed my iced coffee, jelly beans and chocolate buttons into my backpack and headed to my local multiplex on a solo trip to see Pokemon Detective Pikachu. After a very stressful week, I wanted to plunge into my childhood world of Pokemon yes. for a couple of hours. Mostly, I was looking forward to some witty bants from Mr <laughs> witty Reynolds. Witty bants? Please, please tell me they spelt that with a Z. No, actually, oh, no. Okay. with an okay. S. Rachel says, I loved it. I laughed throughout and couldn't help falling in love with the adorable, cuddly face of Pikachu. The storyline was easy to follow. I don't think you need to know much about Pokemon before seeing this. And the ending pulled on the heartstrings. I hope that they carry on the adventures of Detective Pikachu and Tim. So far, my favourite film of 2019. Thoroughly recommended and we'll be buying this as soon as it comes out on DVD. Alec Farlow in Petersfield. I'm a 27-year-old, medium-term listener, first-time emailer. This is all very exciting, says Alec. This weekend, I and the good lady, head of business studies her indoors, visited our local multiplex to view the aforementioned Pokemon Detective Pikachu. Having both been children when Pokemon first introduced themselves to the world, we had mixed feelings before going in. On the one hand, Pokemon brings with it a huge amount of nostalgia-induced warmth, and on the other, well, the less said about the first Pokemon movie, the better. I agree with that. Yeah, I have to say, you hated that. Right? I absolutely. Why did you see it? 
I was taking child one. Oh, fine. Who liked that kind of thing. And I was sitting next to Phil Jupiter's, who was taking his child one, I imagine. <laughs> and we both fell asleep. So I have to say, we both enjoyed this film. image now of you and Phil Jupiter's propped up against each other. In well, I brought the Sunday papers and I was going to read. <laughs> and then they turned the lights down. What was that? Anyway. Okay. The performances were excellent, and I bet Bill Nye has never had so much fun and been so out of his depth all at the same time. <laughs> we had one small gripe with the film. Both of us felt the use of the actual central London was rather distracting. Seeing the gherkin and other landmarks popping out of what was otherwise a beautifully realised world almost served to pull us out of the experience altogether. Uh, yes, that's it. I mean, I I thought the 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 cityscape stuff was really good. As I said, it did remind me of Blade Runner. Um, I I knew nothing about Pokemon before, other than that I knew the the name and I knew the old private eye gag about pocket money, um, and I'm, but I I went in expecting to think to, to expecting to not enjoy it at all, and I did enjoy it partly because it is the you know PG rated Deadpool in terms of the voice by Ryan Reynolds, but partly because it's actually rather beautifully made. I mean, it's you know it's 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 properly shot by John Matheson. It's it's got these kind of cityscapes that I think you know, looked genuinely futuristically dazzling. And you, it's definitely true that you did imagine that between takes, Bill Nye went, so, sorry, pardon? What? It's, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a Pokemon. It does what? Oh, yes. Okay, fine. And then turn back and deliver these lights. But he does it, he does it rather brilliantly. I think it was much more fun than I expected. And I, I really, I actually really liked it. It was not my favourite film of the year, but it's certainly the most surprising film of the year because... I did go in thinking this is just going to give me a headache. And the UK box office number one is John Wick, Chapter Three, Parabellum. There's and a colon and a hyphen in there. There is both, isn't there? Yeah. And again, I might be I might be out of step, but I thought this was the best of the John Wick movies. It's the it may be that it's the one in which I finally got it, because I I, I didn't really get it with the first two. I like the um, the the choreography. A lot of people have pointed out because I mentioned the raid. A lot of people have said, "Yeah, well, that's because there are you know performers from the raid in it. That's why it looks like the raid." Um, I think the, the sort of choreography of the fight sequences is great, and it has that fleet-footed sense of a Hollywood musical. I also think, and you, I think you, you you got to this in that interview with Keanu Reeves. There are things that Keanu Reeves can do. I'm going to sneeze in a minute, okay? And okay I'm, I'm just warning the world because I. It's a very, very rare to sneeze on air. Is it? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I don't know. It's just one of those things that you never hear. No, it's pissed Coughing is away. one thing. Yeah, there no, it is. Yeah, but believe me, if I sneeze on air, it's I, I sneeze terribly. So why don't I read okay. the correspondence? It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. So um, that he is a proper physical performer. And it's we often underestimate the skill involved in physical performance. We admire people for reading speeches well. But what Keanu does, he is a movie star. He has movie star presence and he's a great physical performer. And that's what John Wick needs. And from your interview last week, what was evident was he throws himself into the role Completely. with every bit as much determination as Brando did with, you know, Godfather or whatever. He becomes that character. Andy, age 49 and 7 twelfths, just came out of an early showing of John Wick 3 whilst working away in Newry, Northern Ireland. My review... Totally bonkers, absolutely fantastic. <laughs> How many different ways can Keanu kill people? Lots. I smiled <laughs> from beginning to end, and I loved every bit of it. Um, this is Sheila in York. I enjoyed the first two John Wick films immensely. I was looking forward to Parabellum. I came away feeling that the film was a beautifully choreographed piece of tosh. <laughs> I didn't hate it. I just felt it could have been a bit shorter. 
with a little more dialogue. The fight scenes were impressive, but I felt the actors sounded like tennis players with their grunts and groans. It passed the six giggle test easily, but I got bored after about 90 minutes and started making notes in the dark. All the actors played their parts well. I always enjoy seeing In McShane playing the menacing, brooding character, but I wanted more screen time from Halle Berry and Jerome Flynn. Liz, age 26, in Birmingham, went to see John Wick Parabellum after work at my local Birmingham multiplex. Hadn't seen the second film, so didn't have much idea who anyone was or what was going on. Luckily, this doesn't seem to be a problem for the John Wick franchise, and I got exactly what I expected. A particular favourite scene of mine is Keanu killing someone with a book, which we mentioned in the interview. We did. I would like to issue a challenge to the screenwriters of John Wick 4 to have Keanu kill someone with something even more ridiculous next time. May I suggest butternut squash or an accordion? (laughs) It's a nice idea, Liz. An accordion, I, I go along Death with. Death by accordion. I, I don't want to see John Wick kill someone with a butternut squash. Is a butternut squash like a large root vegetable? Yes, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a huge beast of a thing. Right. You don't want to go anywhere near it. But an accordion, very good. Yeah. And Oliver in Jerusalem. I was not disappointed with John Wick 3. Whilst the story arc isn't exactly the most dramatic, the action more than compensates. What is particularly remarkable is the finely balanced style of the violence. Many action films... Of late, of late, lack weight. John Wick manages to be well choreographed, but not overly so, riding the seams of martial arts and action movies. The audio is particularly impressive detail. It was certainly paid, they certainly paid attention here to add a real sense of presence. I think that's our first email from Jerusalem, actually, that we've had. Oh, really? Anyway, see the iWitter app for the location of yeah. listeners around. The physicality thing is right, though. It does, it, it, it has weight, it has heft, it, do, it does feel like it's uh, pretty good. And, that, and that's why it kind of connects oddly back to the Matrix, because the Matrix had a lot of sort of flyy stuff, but this actually felt. Hefty. That's I'm flyy and hefty. Very good. <laughs> just a reminder that from next week the show goes three until five. Just to sort of I'm shake. Confused things. already. But you've been confused about Five Live and not Radio <laughs> Five and the News Channel and News Twenty Four ever since they've changed. Everything. I know. I don't. I don't learn fast. Rocket Man is out this week. Lots of you've seen it already because, as Mark said, it came out on Wednesday. We'll find out what everybody makes of it. You'll find out Mark's review in just a second. First, my conversation with the star of the film, Taron Egerton. After this clip featuring Taron as Elton John and Richard Madden as Elton's former manager and lover, John Reed. Don Perignon. 63, it's a good vintage. Oh, no, thanks. It's uh, always important to rely on the kindness of strangers. John Reed. Elton. I know it all seems a bit overwhelming at first, but uh, something makes me think you'll get used to it. In fact, I predict you could be the best-selling artist in America if you desire. I see you like the song, then. Not quite as much as the singer. As a clip from Rocket Man, I'm delighted to say that Taron Egerton is back on the show. Hello, Taron. How are you? I'm very well. It's lovely to see you again, Tommy. Are you, are you enjoying all this? Because this is quite some bum fight, isn't it? It's demanding and very energetic experience promoting a film always. But there is something galvanising about having pride in the project. And I have pride in the project. Yeah. And a number of people have said, you know, this is a real kind of breakout role for you does it feel do you, I mean you've had really high profile roles before and we've spoken to you about those but you know does this feel of a different order in some respects of course it does I would be lying if I said it didn't because it's about someone globally recognizable but beyond that the process has felt 
very creative and collaborative and I've loved the people who've worked on it and I genuinely have great faith in all of them and their specialist skills and when it all comes together I believe in the movie so I'm um, I'm very excited to be talking about it but I am going to reserve judgment on quite how it's going to affect my life until it's at least come out in one territory. <laughs> okay. I did what I think most people will do when they come out and I had a blast I thought it was terrific and I just downloaded a whole bunch of Elton songs which as well as the soundtrack with you singing uh, because I thought I had them and then I didn't have them you know because you forget the genius of the writing skills of Elton John and Bernie, yeah. Bernie Taupin it says directed by Dexter Fletcher you've worked with before yeah. can you explain how the jigsaw came together of you being Elton came about so we were doing Kingsman 2 and I think Matthew Vaughan struck up something of a friendship with Elton John and David Furnish who have had this project for over a decade in development with Lee Hall, the scriptwriter. And Matthew had found out that I could sing. And as you know, the film is a musical. And I think his architect's mind started ticking and he obviously approached them first and then asked me how I felt about it. And I thought it was incredibly exciting and he said that he had Dexter in mind to direct it. Dexter and I had this fab time making a movie called Eddie the Eagle with Hugh Jackman. And it just felt right. And it felt like an unmissable opportunity. And then it kind of sat there for a couple of years with lots of conversations happening and, and very little actually moving forward until late 2017, where it started to really feel like something that was going to become a reality. And then by mid-2018, we were rocking and rolling. At the start of 2018, we went to Abbey Road and recorded me performing two songs by a piano, not playing the piano, but by a piano. And I sang your song and Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. And we did that basically to try and get the studio support we needed and Paramount became involved after that point and everything started to really accelerate. Because it's not just Elton being in the Kingsman movie, but it's also the fact that you sang I'm Still Standing in Sing. Yes, that, that happened. And also your RADA audition, I understand, was your song. This is true. So true. the Elton influence, even though you're way too young to be a part of the Elton story from the 70s. Which of course. Is the period of, but he's been a part of your life anyway. But I think that's the case for a lot of people. It sounds like fate and it sounds like an extraordinary level of synchronicity. But actually, for most people, we can chart points in our lives from Elton's music. That's the nature of these global phenomena. Uh, they do form the soundtrack to our lives. And it's why people feel such a sense of global ownership. And I'm, I am no exception. You know, I've, Elton's someone I've been aware of from a very, very young age. Yeah. Can I ask you about becoming Elton? Whether there was, uh, I don't know, whether it's he, the way he walks, the way he sings, the way he holds himself. Is there something when it clicked? I think it's about a duality of extremely kind of ferocious expression and massive levels of energy and then an extremely vulnerable sensitivity. And it's about oscillating between the two, I think. I'm not a great impersonator. I don't think it's my particular skill set. However, I have sought to capture something of the spirit of who he is and knowing him a little bit, that to me is about that thing he has where one minute he can seem hugely imposing and intimidating and the next he can look like a little boy. And that's who he is in my mind and that's sort of what I've tried to bring to my performance. I've interviewed him a, a number of times and it's fair enough to say it's not an impersonation. But There are you, elements, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. I'm not going to deny that. But, but, and, but also he has a very distinctive singing style. His yeah. diction is really unique. I mean, it's quite mangled. It, it is, it times. is. And one of the challenges of this is it's changed so much over the course of his life. You know, one of his contemporaries is Michael Caine and the same things happen to him. That's what happens as you get older. Because of the nature of what our movie is stylistically, we don't deal with the songs chronologically. That presents a very unique challenge because... Elton's voice when he was 23 is wildly different to his voice of, say, the late 90s. 
but it might be that a song from the late 90s is included in the first act of the movie and a song that he wrote when he was 23 is included in the last. So essentially, it's about trying to find moments to pay homage to and be evocative of without being locked down by a very specific chronology because the nature of what our movie is doesn't really allow for that. I've heard you describe the movie and the style of the movie because obviously it's not told like Bohemian Rhapsody is told. This is a a different approach. There's part jukebox musical in there. Uh, Someone described it as a rehab confessional. I mean, what what phrases are you happy with? I'm quite happy with that one. I like that. And I think, you know, in some respects, it's a few different things. And, And of course, we're not trying to distance ourselves from Bohemian Rhapsody, there are elements of it that are similar. There are elements of it that are nearer to a more conventional biopic, but we do depart from that at times. We use Elton's songs to try and progress the plot, and we try and take some of these lyrics, lots of them being quite prosaic, and attach meaning to them that suits our purpose. So when Elton leaves rehab, he turns to the group and he says, I found a taste of love in a simple way. And it's not hard to know what message we're trying to convey there. But... um, I am very comfortable with what anyone wants to take from it. I hope, I think the best work is open to interpretation and I do feel that way about our film. I mean, I love Bohemian Rhapsody as well, but one thing it was criticised for was sort of looking away from Freddie's sexuality Mm. and that's not something which is going to be labelled at at your film. You absolutely embrace it from the word go. It's really part of the picture. I'm glad you feel that way. I think the thing with Bohemian Rhapsody is it's as much a movie about the band as it is him and it's aimed at a very specific audience. Now, we are lucky enough to be working with Elton and David as producers on the film and it's a slightly more grown-up story, I would say. It's certainly a more grown-up telling of this story and it was always at the forefront of what we wanted to achieve. I feel it's important it was always in the script. It's not something that we as filmmakers have rode in on our charges and insisted on. It was always in the script. It was in the script that was developed and it was part of what excited us about it. And we've tackled it in the way we would anything else. Yeah. And you and Elton and David Furnish have said basically, if that means that, we don't get shown in Russia or it gets banned. in. That, yeah. in so, OK, sorry, I'm quoting yourself back uh, yeah, at you. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, then so be it because this is the movie that Elton wanted. Yes, exactly. And all of us. And I think making concessions about those key things do not lead to change. And so somewhere you have to draw the line. And of course, of course, this is a commercial endeavour as well as an artistic one. There has to be a point where you preserve your integrity in order to be able to look, one, yourself in the eye in the mirror, and two, the gay people in your life you love and care about. How much were Elton and David part of the creative process once you'd been wound up and you were on and the film is running and you're yeah. making it does it visit the set David and, did yeah Elton didn't and I'm very grateful that he didn't come to set I think when you're portraying someone struggle with addiction especially you know you have to have the freedom to move around in a way that possibly makes someone look a little unappealing at times and possibly makes someone a difficult character to invest in at times that would have been very, very difficult had Elton been around. So I was grateful to him for giving me that space. That's not to say we weren't connected during the process. We were and still are very connected. But um, David came and just because he wasn't there, that doesn't mean that they weren't watching lots of rushes and having input and, and feelings about things. But no, they weren't breathing down our necks. That you know, I think Elton understands creativity and he's a big fan of film. And, you know, anyone worth their salt knows that in order to get the best out of people, you have to afford them space. There's absolutely no question that the film does not glorify drug taking. There's a lot of drug taking in the movie because, as you say, right, one of the first things that you say in the movie, you're an alcohol addict, cocaine addict, sex addict, weed addict, bulimia, prescription drugs, and we see all that. And you addressed it as part of the film. I wondered if 
part of the wonderful nature of his creativity was all wrapped up in that. Yeah, I mean, you know, he... And, and if you back off from that, then maybe you lose some of the creativity. Well, he expresses that doubt in the film. And I think it's definitely a question. It's a question that, that pops up a lot, you know, is there a correlation between self-destruction and being able to create things? And I would say there are plenty of examples that suggest yes, whether that's a uniform fact. I don't know, I probably doubt that, but I would say, yeah, there's probably a correlation, I think. Just on the recording of the songs, you mentioned that you went and you recorded a couple of the tunes, which is how you appealed to the studio in the first place. As I understand it, you recorded all these 18 tracks, mm. but that increasingly, as, as the film progressed, we hear a live take of your vocal. Take us to the set, tell us what happened. We employ different techniques. You know, it's, it's very trendy to say that you sang everything live. I can't speak to the validity of that in terms of other productions. We do some live and we do some not live. The technical demands and logistics of doing a number like Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting, which doesn't just include me, includes hundreds of dancers, extras, camera technicians, you know, a cinematographer, Dexter, and all of this rigging and paraphernalia, we sing along to a track, because otherwise you would completely lose control of everything. <laughs> now, for something like your song, which is a young man sat at a piano... It's a fabulous moment in the film. Thank you very much. I do that live, and I'm very proud of it, and I will claim it, because... It's true. And then there are sections of songs where I sing live. So Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, it starts live in the mirror. You know, there's bits of I'm Still I'm still Standing, everything in rehab was done live on set. So where possible, to try and achieve an authenticity of expression, it's sang live. But of course, my desire to do as much live doesn't trump the constraints of filmmaking. So not everything is live. Great relationship with Jamie Bell playing Bernie Torpey's terrific. And I, and I just want to mention Stephen Graham as Dick it's James. Fab, isn't it? Only because every, everything he's, he's involved with, he lights up. It's just I know. fantastic. He's got that wonderful gift as an actor. In the screening I was in the other day, he walked in and didn't say anything. You felt the audience's affection instantly because he just has that quality. It's an, it's an undefinable thing. Yeah. In my opinion, Rocket Man is a huge success. I, you know, uh, I loved it. As I said, I da- went away and downloaded a whole bunch of songs afterwards. You must be thinking, OK, so what's next? Yeah, and I, and I genuinely don't know. I think it, in some respects it's tricky because it's afforded me so many opportunities. The music has been something that I've wanted to pursue for a while. But to have that coupled not only with a very complex character and the turbulent story filled with conflict which is what you want and a great arc which is you know of paramount importance for any acting gig it's been an incredible ride with people who have become such important people in my life and I feel like inevitably there's a chance the next thing might not match up but I think a song and dance show with uh, Hugh Jackman is inevitable at some stage I, I, where do I sign I'm desperate for it to happen he's very he's a very busy boy at the moment and who knows before too long perhaps you'll see us in the same place again but I would love for that to happen on a screen do you get to take anyway, any, any of the outfits did they say you can have all these wonderful incredible wardrobe that Elton has which you which you done which would you take home I have campaigned quite hard for the denim jacket from Tiny Dancer which is sort of the one with all the patchwork uh, it's quite modest uh, uh, it is quite modest it's pedestrian enough for me to actually use it I think and I'm told I'm led to believe by the designer Julian Day that I'm getting it next week Taryn Edgerton congratulations thank you very thank much you, for joining us thank you thank you thank you it came to me listening 
back to that interview, that that quiz where which people play, they're trying to work out what I think about a movie. Oh yeah, I think I've given it all away. Yeah, you, because I did. You tell Taron that I thought it was that I thought it was very good, and that jacket which people will see—it's the most understated thing that you see. Yeah. Uh, it's not that understated. Well, but no, 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 it's the yes, compare it, compare with the orange jumpsuit with horns. Yeah, I think I'd yeah, go yeah. for that jacket as well. So he, I, I need to say this before we start. When I sat down, he said, "What did you think?" And yeah. I said, "I really liked it." He said, "What does Mark think?" And I said, "I genuinely don't know because you were watching it at, at the same time as you exactly were doing the, the same interview. time." But my guess is that Mark is going to love it. Anyway, okay. so here's the verdict. Well, I mean, you know me well. I just thought it was fantastic. There you go. I loved it to pieces. And uh, I will try and kind of... Uh, every time I, I start thinking about it, I just burst into a stupid smile. And I've been saying to people, you know, people think, they go, which do they go? I go, it's just fab. Okay, so nuts and bolts stuff firstly as you say quite right it's a musical it's not a biopic i mean it may have a biographical you know line to it but it is a musical and so it puts the it uses its jukebox selection of songs on shuffle to fit the mood rather than the timeline so we immediately get over the bohemian rhapsody issue of that song's not at that gig and the mot the hoople tour where's that it's just all that's out of the way it's like there's a big jukebox and we're hitting all these things separately to match the mood that's the first thing also, the structure that it has, the confessional structure of him walking, you know, dressed as the demon, walking into the, the rehab and then looking back on his life, owes, I think, I mean, it, it, it reminded me of the structure of Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which was the, the, the Ian Dury thing, in which it's a vaudevillian performance, in which he's on stage, you know, sort of ringmastering the life around him. And I think that that unreliable narrator telling their story actually is a very good device for telling a story in which... You, you you know, you don't want to go detail by detail. You want to use the songs to create this kind of, this collage. I think in terms of direction, it is fantastically confident. It has, I mean, I do think that, I, I loved Sunshine on Leith. I've, you know, we showed Sunshine on Leith in Shetland and I, it was the third or fourth time I've seen it and I sobbed all the way through it. And I think Dexter Fletcher is, let's be clear about this, a genius. I think he is somebody who actually understands how musicals work and what musicals can look like. And we all know that Dexter Fletcher saved Bohemian Rhapsody, but this is his film. This is the film in which he's doing the thing that Dexter Fletcher can do. And I think you look at the confidence of a sequence like The Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting, which takes us in this leapfrog from childhood to adulthood via this fairground dance that reminded me of the front cover of the first Darts album. And it's just... It's not just that it's superbly choreographed, it's that it is breathtakingly confident. It's like the director is taking you by the hand and saying, I got this, this is fine, here we go, come with me, this is going to work. Um, I also think that Edgerton is terrific in it. Taron Edgerton is terrific. Is it Taron or Taron? Ta Ta Taron. Taron. Well, I, think, I, don't know. I, I, I called him Taron, Taron when I met him. He okay. didn't tell me off. I think he's really great for two reasons. Firstly, one of the weird things about Elton John is that he was one of the most vulnerable icons of the glam era that he had that dual thing that on the one hand it was chest forward you know he often wore outfits which actually put his chest forward but he also had the thing of the of the boy hiding behind the glasses and there's a whole thing going on in the film about him having to play act being confident about him being an introverted extrovert about you know this whole thing about as a child when are you going to hug me and actually the whole film is really the story of somebody in need of a hug it's you know somebody who wants to I want love that's kind of the underlying theme of it. And what Edgerton gets is that mixture of bravado, but also that sense that behind it there is there is something reticent and you know and worried. I love the way the film 
acknowledged and understood modern musicals. I mean, you know, Ken Russell obviously did Tommy, but and there's a there is a very strong Dexter Fletcher, Derek Jarman, Ken Russell connection anyway. So I was looking at things like the sequences that evoke MGM musicals, and it's not making me think of MGM musicals, it's making me think of The Boyfriend, which evoked MGM musicals. I'm looking at the Fantasia fireworks sequences, and I'm thinking of Altered States. I'm looking at that that kind of weird writhing disco thing from with the overhead shot of the writhing bodies, and I'm thinking of uh, the, the sequence from The Devils. I mean, that kind of Ken Russell sense of the, the, the marriage of visuals and music and that sense of excess is there. But what's, what it's married to is the intimacy of the central relationship, which is a love story, but not in that way, as they say very clearly, between Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Now, bear in mind, my favourite Elton John album is Captain Fantastic, okay, which I love because I love the autobiographical element. I love the thing about the story of their life together, you know, of them of, of them writing, of bitter fingers, of them in cafes. And I think that what's great about Rocketman is that for all its flamboyant, spangly excess, you do get that sense, that scene when they're in the cafe and they're having the conversation about how, mu- how much they love Streets of Laredo and how much Bernie Taupin has got these kind of cowboy fantasies. I think that's beautifully done because it's the quiet intimacy at the centre of this kind of exploding thing. And if you get that wrong, if you don't get that, everything else will fall apart. Then, of course, you have Stephen Graham, and I am going to spend the rest of my life going, I'm going to have a massage every time something... Because it's... he. I mean, he doesn't have a huge amount of lines, but every single one of them, he makes the most of them. He looks like, and you said this very intuitively last week, he looks like he is enjoying himself. Oh, absolutely. He looks like he's having a really, really good time. And the other thing that it reminded me of, and quite often... He plays um, Dick James. Dick Dick James from Dick James Music, yeah. And I know that you know, as a film critic, so I'm, what, I'm trying, what I'm getting here is I'm trying to marry my sense of just wanting to go, it's brilliant, it's brilliant, it's brilliant, and also making sense of it as a, as a critic. And often what happens to me is the films that I really love, what I love is that they remind, they remind me of other things. Not that they're ripping other things off, but they're reminding me of the feelings of that. And there is a sense in it that also reminded me of Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. You know, it's showtime. The whole story about the central character played by Roy Scheider, who is basically on his deathbed, but having these, you know, these kind of fantasias. And it, and it goes from hospital to stage. And there is a sequence in Rocket Man in which it goes from ambulance gurney to stage. And there's also a gesture that Tyron Edgerton does, which is putting on the smile, you know, which is the laughing through the tears thing, the looking and thing going bing, and then suddenly walking out and it's Dodger Stadium or wherever it is, you know, and, and whacking the ball with the baseball bat. So all those things are going on and it would be so easy to get it wrong. It would be so easy to, you know, to, to, to drop the ball with a story that's got so many things going on in it. But I, I mean, I, you know, I, I was a huge Elton John fan, particularly of, of that period. As I said, during the 70s, I did buy every single album. And again, that's the problem because you think, well, that's when you're going to tread on people's toes. That's when, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody thing. Well, if you know that there's that album before that album, that gets you confused. But I, okay, so as a film critic and looking at the movies it reminded me of, I think, great. Dexter Fletcher is somebody who understands that lineage of musicals. As somebody who's, and it's a musical, it's a proud musical. As somebody who just likes it from a performance point of view, the performances are really great. And Taron Egerton is right at the centre of that. But the, the supporting performances, whether it's Bryce Dallas Howard, who hands in the air, I didn't recognise for the first no. half of the movie. I didn't even realise that's who it was. And then beneath all of that, underneath all of that, behind all of that, I just want to go, 
it's fabulous and I love it and I want to go and see it again. And I just lose the any sense of reasonable critical faculty. You're hyperventilating, in fact. I just loved it. Uh, Tom on the train to East Croydon. It's funny, Taredge, as you refer <laughs> Taredge. to him, There's some quotes... There is something galvanising about promoting a project you believe in, end of quotes. He didn't sound very galvanised when he talked about Kingsman 2, which I think says everything. But what he was, was he was very honest in that interview. And when he I was. asked him about the dodgy sexual yeah, politics of it, I know. he said, no, fair point. Exactly, he And did. I think you can hear honest Taron actually in that interview all the way through. Why is your hand in the air? One other thing. I love the fact that he basically flies at the Troubadour. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Mark is still talking about... <laughs> Taron Edgerton playing Elton John in Rocketman. If you've just joined us, you've missed the review and you missed Taron Edgerton. Anyway, you can pick it all up on the podcast. Uh, before I do some Rocketman emails, what else is uh, happening in this hour? Well, we're going to be doing Aladdin and we're going to be doing Booksmart and we may well in this hour also be doing something else which doesn't go to come immediately to mind. Oh, the John McEnroe in the realm of perfection, which is a film that's not about tennis. Jeffrey in Manchester, my first thought upon emerging from a screening of Rocket Man was if only Sasha Baron Cohen had been cast in Bohemian Rhapsody, because then it may have held a light to the brilliance and realism that is Taron Egerton. Not since Stephen Dorff in the Beatles biopic Backbeat as an, author, as an actor become the embodiment of the character uh, of the film. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Not since Backbeat has an actor become the embodiment of the character. If this film had been released earlier, it could have taken away the nonetheless deserved Oscar from. Rami Malik. Not okay, quite sure not quite grammatically off. correct, but I get no. the thing. But incidentally, well done for bringing up Backbeat, which is a film the the, the virtues of which are often overlooked, and it's a brilliant film by uh, Ian Softley, who's the, who's the real genius behind Backbeat. Anyway, um, the rest of it does make sense, I think, with serious echoes of Freddie Mercury, not least with the debauchery and the studio's antipathy. We tread a careful. Toe tapping, non chronological path through the madness. Run have another when, run at that. When talent needs fame. Non chronological. How long will this stay at the top? I think it's going to be a long, long, long time. time. Jane Muir didn't so much pass the six laugh test as the six chuckle test, but a great watch nonetheless. Taron Edgerton's singing was, I thought, honest and heartfelt and did justice to the quality of the songwriting. Jamie Bell has grown into himself beautifully in his portrayal of Bernie Taupin, gave a real sense of how deep their connection runs. I just say on the six laugh test, Stephen Graham racked up six laughs on his own. Matt Melia, I had loved Bohemian Rhapsody, but this had everything that that film lacked in terms of imaginative, imaginative flair Good. and, of course, the sex, drugs and rock and roll. I kept thinking how much better Bo Rap would have been if it had been done this way. The way Elton's songs were integrated into the narrative really worked well. Furthermore, as a fan and scholar of the late, great Ken Russell... Hey! I was thrilled to see how this was almost a Russell film incorporating... Yes. The Great Man's Eye for Theatrical Cinematic yes. Staging yes. and his approach to film biopics. Yes. Across yes. the film, I counted references to Altered States, yes. Listermania, yes. The Boyfriend. Yes. Go on. Tommy. Yes. Which Elton himself yeah. had been in, in. Yeah. And The Devils. Which felt like a template for Please the say film. The Devils. And it had Gemma Jones as Elton's nan. Yeah. Director Dexter Fletcher had even had a role in Ken's 1986 Frankenstein film, Gothic. So the influence should and, come as no surprise. Don't interrupt the email sorry. again. Russell had also directed a couple of Elton's videos, Nikita and Sacrifice, which was rejected by Elton, although neither <laughs> the film. Matt knows his stuff. Yeah, and 
uh, Dexter Fletcher worked with Derek Jarman and Derek Jarman was Ken Russell's protege because Derek Jarman got his first movie gig doing sets, for doing those unbelievable sets for The Devils. Nick in Belfast. I have to say, what a fantastic film. Rocket Man is an extravagant, colourful, no-holds-barred journey. To quote the lyrics of a band featured in another Dexter Fletcher rock biopic, this is the tale of a rock star finding fame and fortune and everything that goes with I thank you all. But for me, that's where the comparisons with Bo Rap end. Rocket Man is a different beast. Can you do that again? That was really funny. It's full of imagination and fantasy. No. Okay. A sequence that starts with a drug-fueled plunge in a pool and ends with a piano-top baseball swing in Yankee Stadium is breathtaking and is only one of some truly extraordinary set pieces throughout the film. At times playful, at times painfully honest, at times otherworldly, Rocket Man encapsulates the public persona of Elton John with vim and vigor. vigor. Just a wonderful film, a contender for film of the year. Alex in East London uh, just got out of a screening of Rocket Man. One word to describe it, colourful. Dexter Fletcher does a great job of taking us on a whistle-stop tour of the life of Elton, Hercules John. Some great turns in the supporting cast. Special mentions to Stephen McIntosh as Elton's uncomfortably unpleasant father. Stephen Graham having a ball as Dick James and a supremely likeable Jamie Bell as Bernie Taupin. But the film belongs to Taron Egerton, an actor seizing a role with both hands, knowing it's the part of a lifetime. As you watch the film, you can swear he turns into the Elton John that we know before our very eyes. If there's any justice, he'll have a similar road to awards glory as Rami Malek did this year. Some of the characters are way too broadly sketched and the ending felt a bit abrupt, but all in all, it's a great addition to the biopic genre. Did you think the ending felt abrupt? I don't think it felt abrupt. My only quibble with it probably is the fact that you then get lots of... Yes, I know. And that, isn't Elton wonderful yes. at the end? Which I think, there well, is, it's kind of like, we've just seen the film. Yeah. You don't need to now spend all this time telling us he's fab. And I decided not to in the interview, because you only get... We only had 15 minutes yeah, with, of course. with Taron. And I decided not to do that. Why didn't... Why do? You, why does the movie claim that the John is after John Lennon when actually it was after Long John Baldry? Because I thought, okay, well, you know, who cares in the end of it? But you know, because yeah. it's a better story. Yeah, and also it may be that at some point Elton John has told that story as being John Lennon. I mean, I've I've heard the Long John Baldry thing. Yeah, well, but you know, so but 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 who you know? As we know, again, unreliable narrator thing. Stu Bell, don't go expecting a Bohemian Rhapsody-style uh, biopic with songs. This is a full-blown musical fantasy. It looks lavish, and the musical numbers, as well as being excellently choreographed, reinterpret the songs in the dramatic context of the story to great effect, and the arrangements by Giles Martin are stunning. Taron Edgerton is brilliant as the flamboyant, self-destructive Elton, who has a very good singing voice. Jamie Bell is equally impressive in the understated role of John's long-suffering best friend and writing partner, Bernie Taupin. It's by turns funny, exhilarating and surprisingly moving. Can I ask you a question? That scene early on, when you see the young Elton sitting at the piano with the glasses, did you spy that immediately as the still that's in the fold-out book from Captain Fantastic? And then at the end, you see it. At the end, they put the two... You know where they're doing that thing at the end? when they put I thought it was pictures? a bit like the John Lewis ad. Yeah, okay. I, that... didn't, I didn't think of the album shot. Okay. But you obviously did. I did. You love it. That's exactly what I thought. Susie Simpkins, amazing film. I was reminded of Moulin Rouge at times. It all worked oh. so well. Great performances from everyone. Diane Brooks went to see this film yesterday. Thought it was amazing. Made me cry and tap my feet. A fantastic film. Anyway, all in all, I'm sure the backlash will occur at some stage. But um, About 325. In fact, there are, there are some snooty critics. 
I have I, some I, of whom. Okay, one I confess, of whom has a desk not far from I here. I haven't. Think, what? I haven't read any other reviews because um, I know it played at Cannes, and I saw James King at the screening, and James said that he had bumped into Dexter Fletcher in Cannes because James was in Cannes briefly, and he said, you know, he looked. It was this was the morning after the screening, and he said, and he looked pleased or relieved or whatever it was so i so i got a sense from that that the critics had, had liked it but i haven't read any reviews have there been sniffy reviews there have been a couple of sniffy reviews and uh, i think we're just here to say first of all you can ignore any if that you see and you just trust mark and the listeners to this program yes. and they're all saying it's fab that's it end of yeah. story or to put it more bluntly <laughs> that's right and that's why you are the critic of stand most trusted critic <laughs> is that right? Something like that anyway. 3%. 3% um, there'll be, more, there'll be more of that. Uh, and if you want to contribute, mail at bbc.co.uk. You can text 85058. There are other films to see. There are, amazingly. So Aladdin, which also opened uh, on Wednesday. So I presume that we'll have some emails about Aladdin. Um, this is Disney continuing their trawl through their back catalogue of animated films that are now being reimagined as live action films. And when I do that list, we always, you know, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Dumbo, and then Jungle Book. Although Jungle Book, Jungle Book is an interesting case because Jungle Book is more of an animated film than it is a live action film because with the exception of the young boy who's so brilliant in it, it's, you know, it's, it, it's all, it's effectively, and we, we're getting to the point that the difference between live action and animation is becoming increasingly blurred. But so it's better to say, it's a remake of the traditional animations as something which looks like a, a, a live action film uh, directed by Guy Ritchie, who, of course, you know, made his name with Lockstock and then kind of burned his bridges with Revolver. I still remember your interview with Guy Ritchie about Revolver as being one of the finest pieces of radio really? I've ever... Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was somebody making sense of word spinach and it was fantastic, well done, and then swept away. And so then there lots of numerology and stuff. A lot of numerology, a lot of numerology. And then the Sherlock Holmes movies, which were great and really looked like kind of modern Hammer movies. And then King Arthur Daily is all right, which is not great. And now, back on track with a film which looks absolutely machine-tooled for box office success and, you know, crowd-pleasing results. Min Masood is the street rat who turned royal suitor who falls for Naomi Scott's Prince Jasmine. And I'm assuming that everybody knows the story. Meanwhile, Will Smith plays the genie, who, of course, in the animated version was voiced by and so much more than voiced by, and we'll talk about that in a minute, by um, uh, Robin Williams in something which I think was a kind of a career-defining role for him. It's all very new, it's all very shiny, but it also has a sense of deja vu. You should see these places. I mean, there's a whole world outside of books and maps. Do you want to? How? Every door is guarded. Who said anything about a door? What are you doing? Sometimes, princess, sometimes you just have to take a risk. What just happened? What is this? A magic carpet. Do you trust me? What did you say? Do you trust me? Can you tell where it's going? Um, what, the magic carpet? Yeah, you know. We, it's, yeah. yeah. So, and there's been a lot of stuff about, you know, a whole new world or a whole world with which we're familiar. 
So there are some significant updates. I mean, it's it's not just a sort of straightforward rehash. They have made some uh, some changes, some concessions to uh, you know, the, the period of time that's passed. The, the most significant of which is that the character of Jasmine now gets her own song um, and, and, and more of a voice and more of an agency in her own future. And I think what that demonstrates is the way that the, the times have changed and for the better... And that is definitely good, the way that Disney princesses have, you know, evolved over the years. I mean, we've seen so many sort of, you know, there are films that make jokes about Disney princesses and then there's films that redefine Disney princesses. So all that stuff has changed. I mean, she's a more, much more important, much more central role. And there is this kind of this great song now about having a voice, about not being silenced, about not being, uh, you know, not being uh, silenced. And I think there is a genuine chemistry between the two leads. And I think that Will Smith does as good a job as is possible with the genie. Here is my reservation, um, and this is this won't matter in terms of the audience because I think the film you know will find an audience and people will 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 like it. And it'll be a success. But the part of me that is wedded to animation always wonders, you know, what will a live action remake bring to something that was, you know, animation is a genre in its own right. It's a form in its own right. And actually, when you look at the history of cinema, it's arguably the most adventurous, the most boundary pushing of, you know, whether it's stop motion or hand drawn or, you know, or, or, or CG or 3D or two, whatever it is, animation is an extraordinary thing. And there's always a question of what is the live action bringing to it. Now, in the case of the Robin Williams genie, you know, we've all heard the stories about how what was happening was that the animators were working round Robin Williams, that he was doing these incredible improvs. And in fact, there's a story that when, when they first got him to agree to do it, one of the ways they did it was that the animators made a little three-minute short, which was an animated version of one of his stand-up routines. If you've ever gone on YouTube and you've seen Star Wars Cantina, you know, the, the Eddie Izzard thing, which, which somebody's done a Lego animation in the thing, so they've taken the, the audio of Eddie Izzard and then they've animated around it. Well, that's kind of how an awful lot of that genie that genie portrayal came about i even read somewhere i don't know whether this is true i even read somewhere that um that the film had a problem with the academy in terms of uh, eligibility for script because they, they said well you know so much of it is improvisation and so what you had in aladdin the animated movie was this really brilliant melding of robin williams riffing and the animators putting putting, you know, uh, drawn flesh as opposed to fleshy flesh onto those riffs. And when I think of, uh, of Aladdin, that's what I think of. I think of those sequences in which, you know, he's doing, because apparently one of the ways they got him to audition was they gave him a table with a bunch of things on it. And they said, just lift the thing up and then just talk about the objects. And Robin Williams, if you ever saw Robin Williams do that, it was a torrent of thought. It's like Good Morning Vietnam, in which apparently all that Cronauer stuff, he was just, you know, he was riffing on. So I just... <sighs> There's a part of me that just wonders exactly why we need a live-action version of the animated classic, and I know the answer. Um, the answer is because they make a whole load of money. That's why Dumbo is currently in cinemas. Well, I think Dumbo absolutely doesn't get anywhere near reproducing what we had in the original. In fact, I think Dumbo weirdly tramples over the original, which this doesn't do. This doesn't do that, and it you know it does it it it. It does update certain elements, and there are things about it you can see they made, they made improvement. But I, I have increasingly with with the Disney live action remakes, I just 
think why you know what what's the point what was it not perfectly fine the first time around and the answer is it'll be successful and people will like it and there are certain things that it brings to it but i and maybe and maybe you know take dumbo for example be a whole generation of people who haven't seen the original yes but the so th- therefore we'll go and watch that and then mm-hmm. think i'm now going to go and watch the original yeah so- but you didn't like dumbo either well, I did, it was all right. Yeah, okay. It was all right is not good enough. No. It's Dumbo, right? It's one of the things that you would put in the pantheon. But it's been of, a hit, so that's the answer to it. Yeah, I know, but you know, going. there's a lot of things that are hits that doesn't that doesn't make them good. And I, you know, I thought think this is better than Dumbo. There's no question about that. This is better than Dumbo. It sticks quite closely to the original. It makes certain concessions to changing things because times have moved on. But what it never did was make me go, "Wow, okay, fine." You had there, does, I you know, I get that. Does Will Smith riff? Do you think is there anything that's ad libbed uh, at all? Is he having fun? It doing didn't. It? No, no, I mean, actually, well done. You hit the nail on the head. Oh well, thank you. When I Once when I year. see the original, which I haven't seen the original for a long time now, but when I see the original, I get the sense of Robin Williams going, you know, and having fun. And I didn't get that from the Will Smith performance. There you go. And well done. It took you, it took you to say it, did it? Yes, because I, it wasn't until you said it that I realised that that was what I was struggling towards vocalising. I'm happy to help. Thank That's you. What I'm here for. Jordan Ellison, dear Theron, as in, oh no, dear Theron, as in Heron, and Thron, Thron. as in Prawn. Well, that's quite right. Just got back from the latest Disney remake, and I have to say, on the whole, it's pretty enjoyable. The first act does have a few problems, and it's a bit cringeworthy. But from the first wish onwards. It starts to really pick up, passing the six laugh test in a single awkward introduction. It's good that they've given Jasmine more to do and her own song, but I'm pretty sure it would still fail the Bechtel test, which is a bit of a shame, but given the story, probably inevitable. I always had an issue with how easily it's all resolved in the cartoon, but in this one, there's a touch more foreshadowing. And hello to Jason. We haven't said hello to Jason, and we don't want him to feel grumpy in any way. Hello, Jason. We said a touch more foreshadowing. Um, Adrian Warner. Yeah. Hey, Simon and Mark. Hey. Hey, Adrian. Lovely to hear you talking so positively about Rocket Man. We sang the backing soundtrack. Oh, well. An album at Crouch End Festival Chorus. And it was such a joy to be involved in such great scenes at Saturday nights, all right for fighting. And sorry seems to be the hardest word. Uh, amazing work from Dexter and his team. So that's Adrian, who is part of the Crouch End Festival Chorus. Fantastic. Uh, you can email uh, mail at bbc.co.uk. It's 3.22. What else is out? Booksmart. So Booksmart actually opens on Monday. So it's... But I'm doing but it let's now. not leave it till then. No, no let's not. So um, Olivia Wilde's uh, feature directorial debut, which has been uh, widely described as super bad for girls, although I have to say that I think that that phrase doesn't do it uh, justice at all. So Caitlin Diva and Beanie Feldstein are Amy and Molly. They are straight A high schoolers who have basically avoided fun in order to focus solely on getting good grades because what they want to do, future so bright, they've got to wear shades, um, because what they want to do is to go to good colleges. So they've been very studious and even the, the principal at school thinks that they're, you know, they're, they're pushing it in terms of their studiousness. But the reason is because they want to go to good colleges and they want to have you know, uh, successful lives and they've got great plans for themselves. And then it turns out as they get toward the end of term, they suddenly realise that other people are also going to the good colleges who have managed to have a good time while they were at school. And it's like, how did we miss this? How did we not realise that it wasn't just that we were focusing on 
are, you know, on, on getting good grades. It's that we didn't notice that everyone else was doing the same thing, but also having a good time. So they decide that with one evening to go before graduation, there's only one thing for it. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Let's go to Nick's party. Are you kidding? No, no way. Maybe we only have one night left to have studied and partied in high school. Otherwise, we're just going to be the girls that missed out. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Okay, we've broken a lot of rules. One, we have fake IDs. Fake college IDs so we can get into their 24-hour library. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. Yes, he broke art rules. Name a person who broke a real rule. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. See, I think that's really funny. Anyway, so they decide that what they've got to do is they have to go to a party. They have to part, and, and there is a big party that's happening that they then are going to have trouble finding. So it's like an evening on. So it's sort of like, you know, there's there's an into the night structure to it to some extent. Um, and on the surface, that makes you think, okay, well, it's kind of, you know, American graffiti in that nostalgia thing, but Revenge of the Nerds with something which is behind it. And as I said, it's been been talked of as super bad for girls. I think actually it's much closer to, you know, a, a sort of teenage version of Bridesmaids in as much as what it's actually about is it's about enduring friendships and it's about the power of friendships and the way in which, you know, your best friends mean something to you as you go through a, a period of change in your life, whether it's going from being single to being married or whether it's going from from uh, college to from school to uh, from high school to college. And what I thought was really good about it was, firstly, I saw the trailer, and I have to say the trailer didn't set me up for it. The trailer looked very much like a kind of, oh, okay, it's just going to be that kind of comedy. And actually what the trailer leaves out, because the trailer has all the kind of the most obvious, you know, slap, bang, vulgar gags, because that's what it has. But what makes this really enjoyable is that it's got something much more um, substantial at its centre, that it is disarmingly tender, and it is refreshingly original, and it's not just rehashing or taking old tropes and motifs that you've seen before and just giving them a gender switch. What it's doing is, it is, as I said, very much like a kind of teenage counterpart to uh, to Bridesmaids, because what it's about is it's about that bond of friendship. And it's interesting that like... Um, mid 90s which i think was very underrated we talked about it, didn't even make the make the top 10 and of course was um you know felstein's older brother jonah hill um it it understands the the difficulties and the hardships and the universal sort of traumas of childhood and it has all those things in it but then it also has the keep the belly laughs coming you know uh slap bang uh, humor some of which is gross out some of which is uh, racy some of which is uh, you know is is tender and it i mean i firstly i laughed pretty much all the way through i thought it was genuinely funny uh, secondly there is a kind of whip smartness in 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 the way that the screenwriting and the direction balances those elements thirdly great central performances i did believe that those were two people who have grown up together and who have absolutely got each other's back but are also realizing that their future is you know it is american graffiti there is that american graffiti thing about it's the one last night before everything will change and we go sort of separate ways and also, it's very, you know, it's got very even-handed and it's, it, it uh, changes, it breaks a lot of uh, stereotypes. It's very LGBT-friendly. It is something which is, it doesn't make the obvious gags that these kind of movies do about the characters that are in the ensemble cast. In fact, it's very, very even-handed in treating 
everyone with equal affection. And I think that's one of the things I really like about it is that it's not judgmental about anyone. It's not a film which has baddies and goodies and cliques and, you know, uh, people that you like, people you don't. It just seems to treat everyone with the same sense of um, uh, sort of polymorphous affection, which is they're all kids growing up, going through different things. And actually you scratch the surface and any one of them have got their own, you know, their own joys and their own fears and their own successes. So it's got all that going on and it's funny and it's got gross out humour and it's got all the stuff that you saw in the trailer that I thought, OK, that's fine. I, but I, don't, like the tra- I agree with you about the trailer. I didn't like I went to see um, Woman at War with the good lady ceramicist yeah. her indoors and the trailer came out. I thought, oh, yeah, exactly. Well, I thought the same that. thing. The trailer really put me off and the film I thought was cracking. Uh, Lloyd and Crawley, just been uh, to see a preview of Booksmart. I loved it. I'm a 28-year-old oh, male, so you may think I'm slightly outside the target demographic, but don't be too hasty. As a queer nerd who came out of his shell a little late in my development, I really connected to the lead characters Molly and Amy. Billy Lord deserves praise for absolutely stealing the show as Gigi. Uh, what a great comedic performance. I might see it out again when it's when it's available. Matt in London. I've seen Booksmart at two preview screenings so far. And not only is it one of my favourite movies I've seen this year, it's one of the most fun, easily passing the six laugh test with well-placed situational humour and many laugh-out-loud moments. Wilde's direction is superb. The script and dialogue overall is great, which allows you to buy into the journey that you're being taken on. I urge everyone to see this movie. I hope it reaches the wider audience it deserves. Good. Can I just say, yeah. before the news, I just discovered the Aladdin correspondence. Oh, yes. Go which ahead. I was supposed to read out in the first place... You're rubbish. I am. It was in the wrong pile. <laughs> so with apologies to our uh, correspondent on Aladdin, just spool back slightly. Okay. Christy, age 25, bronze year six reading certificate, went to an, uh, an evening screening of Aladdin. It starts off in the Arabian. Oh, no, we're on a pirate ship. And here's Will Smith being Will Smith. Now, don't get me wrong. I love The Fresh Prince. I could watch the Fresh Prince until the monkeys come home, but I signed up for Aladdin. I thought Will Smith tried to put on some kind of weird accent at first, but then he just slipped into his normal, obviously cool self. Yeah, that's right, yes. When early on Jafar behaves horrendously towards Jasmine and tells her that she should not, be, she should be seen and not heard, yes. I was worried about the entire film, especially compounded with Will Smith's initial uncomfortable appearance. As the film continued, it felt like it was just an amalgamation of various other films. Despite all these seemingly annoying factors, I loved it. The scenery, the costumes, the vibrancy, it was all stunning. Aladdin's cheesy grin would make even the stoniest souls break into a reciprocal smile. And although Will Smith is very much himself, what's so bad about that? His familiar physical and facial humour is so lovable and giggle-inducing that I just didn't care. Um, Josh T in Birmingham. After the marketing such as the first trailer and recent clip of the Prince Ali sequence. I had low expectations, but I was quite impressed with what Guy Ritchie has done here. Fun, fast chase sequences, which reminded me of Indiana Jones, big productions on the songs, fantastic performances, particularly from Mena Masood and Naomi Scott and Nassim Pedrad from uh, Saturday Night Live, who played the Handmaiden. Will Smith gives the genie a new life, so it's completely different from Robin Williams' Uh, much like how Emily Blunt's Mary Poppins is different from Julie Andrews. I am going to see it again. And one more, John Stratton in Northampton. I've just, this second, come out this of an, second, this second come out of an opening night screening of the live action of Aladdin in Northampton. I can't remember the last time I've sat through a movie with a massive grin across my face from start to finish. The casting is inspired. 
Will Smith carries the Williams legacy perfectly by doing his Fresh Prince of Agrabah shtick as the genie. The two leads, who I'd not seen before, were captivating, real and engaging. And the soundtrack bounces you through the visual spectacle uh, with a combination of familiar and new tracks and cues. This is Disney doing what it does best, fantasy escapism that takes you away from the madness of the real world into a world you wished you live in. Guy Ritchie deserves huge plaudits for pulling together a movie that could have easily damaged a much-loved Disney crown jewel. Okay. John Stratton in Northampton. Thank you. So that's a, so it's a, a thumbs up. So in our final half-hour endgame sequence, what are we... Uh, I love the way you just did the Freddie Mercury it's, it's hand right. up to the yeah, thing. Well, that's right. That's the way I, that's the way I am. Uh, this time next week, the programme shifts from... Instead of being two till four, it goes three till five... Uh, but everything else will be exactly the same. It's just in a slightly different, different, place, different place. Really. Yeah. Uh, just ahead of TV Movie of the Week, an email from Dominic, who's in Zurich. Last night, my friends took me to see Avengers Endgame in 4DX. Do you know what that is? Yes, it's when the chair moves around. You got it. It promised an evening of sensory overload. I put on the silly glasses. I settled into the seat. As the film started, my chair began its choreography, tilting me towards the screen to simulate the feeling of weightlessness breathing hot air down my neck as a jet engine was ignited, rocking gently as objects fell to the ground and tickling my heels with a rubber tube for no <laughs> okay, obvious reason. Listen, what you do in your private life. Anyway, so far, so irritating. Halfway into the film, says Dominic, I noticed that the chair hadn't moved in a while. Was it having difficulties performing? Was it dead from exhaustion? No, the chair had just fallen asleep. It hadn't moved for two hours when suddenly it leapt back to life for the end game. As all hell broke loose on the screen, the chair convulsed in epileptic fits. It started throwing me around and off the plot, punching my back and spitting liquids in my face, whilst the tickler flogged me like a possessed rat. <laughs> I'm no Luddite, but this 4DX chair is a machine from hell. Anyway, tickety tonk and down with technology. Well, I don't know what you were expecting, Dominic. If you sign up to go in 4DX with the chair, maybe he was surprised by the rubber tube. So the interesting thing about the rubber tube, I've not done the 4DX chair thing, but that thing about something tickling your ankles was something that um, uh, William Castle, who was the guy who did the Tingler and um, Percepto and all those things, is the, the, the guy upon whom... You ever seen the John Goodman movie Matinee? No. Okay. Well, William Castle was this kind of great exploitation filmmaker who had all these gimmicks that were, you know, involved in, you know, in buzzer, buzzer chairs and all that kind of thing. And he tried uh, to to get what he, one of the last movies he was involved in, which was about giant cockroaches being released by an earthquake. Right. And it's based on the... Uh, it's, Anyway, whatever. Um, and he tried to get a thing of, of feelers brushing your ankles into the cinema. And he couldn't figure out how to make it work. So it sounds to me like 4DX has finally solved that problem. Well, the, but the thing is, that there are some movies that you go and see where you could do with a bit of a jolt and a bit of a slap around the face with a rubber tube. Yeah. However, Avengers, in my case, Winchester. But Avengers Endgame. I know, which is bizarre. You don't need to be tilted or prodded or poked or no, sprayed you with don't. anything. You don't. TV movie of the week. Yes. The team's dozen picks of the best films films on subscription-free TV over the next week. They're posted on our social media channels every Wednesday, in case you're wondering where on earth this comes from. John McBrain. I think this is the strongest list for TV movie of the week that I have ever seen. It's a really seen. good list, actually. In a, in a different week, any of these would have been easy picks. Bill and Ted, Inside Out, You Were Never Really Here, Casino, all wonderful. However, in my opinion, the standout film is Arrival. For a film apparently about aliens, 
It tells a deeply moving human story、It's、in a unique and intelligent way, and Amy Adams is wonderful in it. It really touched me, and I absolutely loved it. Joseph Whittle, I've never got the hype around. You were never really here. I thought it was utterly dreadful, pointless, what, ponderous, and downright boring. So who says this? Doesn't matter. Joseph Whittle. Arriving, arrival, on the other hand, is literally the gift. Hang on, sorry. Which I thought he was saying keeps, about, about Arrival. Like, which film is ponderous? And arrival, boring? on the other hand, is literally the gift that keeps on giving. No, but what was the one that was ponderous and boring? You were never really here. Oh, right. It's, I'm still outraged. Okay, carry on. I just carry on being outraged. It's fine. Great. Okay. Anything else? No, no, it's good. No, no, sorry. Just Lauren Rose. I think Mark will pick Inside Out. My choice is Star Wars: The Force Awakens, as it is a reminder. That what can be possible in extending an original franchise, and that it can be a great movie in its own right. Emma Goldsmith, Inside Out. Mark will also choose it. I'm catching up on podcasts from the time this was released in the cinema, and he is so gushing and full of praise for this movie. It would be hard to believe he'd choose anything else. Matt Broad, Bill and Ted's excellent adventure for me. Although the Good Doctor probably won't pick it. West Side Story is ground zero for all the musicals. The kids love today. <laughs> Does he read? That's how he writes. Does he read? The kids. Okay, yeah. excellent. Good. And Nigel Milner, you were never really here. Is a masterpiece. Unfortunately, it's on at the same time as Arrival, an absolutely brilliant, intelligent science fiction film. Can you pick both? Well, if you mark, you can. But anyway, let's see what he's gone for. Well, because of the mood I'm in, and I'm you know I ain't getting out of this mood. What kind of mood are you in? I'm in a I'm in a Rocket Man mood.、Oh, okay. So I'm going to go for Arrival.、Um, No sunshine on Leith. Okay. Oh, that's clever though. Arrival because of Rocket Man. Yes. No. Okay. Sunshine on Leith. When's that on then? Dexter Fletcher. It is on at eleven o'clock in the morning on Sunday on Film Four. So that's wow. That's a little bit. You want to sit down and watch a movie at eleven o'clock in the morning? Yeah, well, well, maybe you're in bed. Maybe you just you know you just you wake up. I've been up about listen, six hours. Listen to the news headlines. You've done tweet of the day and you've done the church service on the radio. Yes. You just reach out to the remote. No. You know, you get none of those are true, and then yeah, that's how it works. None of those are true. The dog gets unwalked. Nope. Oh, we are, we are getting a dog. All right. Are you? What are you getting? Well, child one is buying a dog. He's、what? bought a dog. What type? It's child one. It doesn't live at home. Child one does live at home. As does his dog. Okay. It's a schnigel. You've just made that up. That's、nose. not a thing. It's a schnauzer and a beagle. Oh, I see. It's a schnigel. schnigel. It's also like Gollum. <laughs> so I'm going to call him Schmiegel, even though the dog is called Lyra. Very good. Anyway, so,、uh, TV movie of the week. So bad it's bad. This week's picks are Parental Guidance, Death Wish Five, The Face of Death, and The Visit. About which Mark said it's really hard work and just all over the place. Incredibly old hat. Your heart sinks. You're thinking he's actually made a film that's worse than Lady in the Water. End of quote. <laughs> Did I say that? Darren Richards, Death Wish Five. I wish I was dead. Stephen Redpath. Any film series with five in it is bad. Fair enough. Dan O'Connor. Is there any film that's got a five at the end that you'd think, oh, that's good? Well,、um, there'll be a there'll be one of those things like one of the what what Star Wars five. Well, he says Empire Strikes Back、right. doesn't count as it was the second film. Yeah, but also it's not. Oh, I see. Fine, it's five. five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.、Anyway. It does count then. Rob O'Connor. I love Death Wish Five. It's dumb action fun with a ninety-five-year-old star pretending he's thirty-five. Toronto posing as New York、yes. is at its most brazen here <laughs> as well, and I love it.、That's、What's、right. our TV movie of the week? Yeah, so bad, mean, it's it, bad. It is. Yeah, it will be Death Wish Five: The Face of Death. I'm trying. I'm now trying to think of whether there is any. There must be a five. There must be a five. So we're not allowed to have Empire Strikes Back. It's got to have five in the title. There aren't many franchises that get to five. No, there's the Fast and Furious Five. 
Yeah, but I... Uh, uh, anyway, Toy Story 5, I'm sure that'll be good. Yes, what are we up to now? Four. Four is on the way. Tom Hanks on the way. Anyway, um, what else is what else is out there? Quarter what, to four, by the Should way. we do Secret Life of Pets uh, two first? Just because we're jumbling the order up a little bit because because I kind of went on too long about Rocket Man. Well, it's Man, all very it's... Rocket Man, so we're all shaking it, is. it all up, going out of sequence. Okay, so Secret Life of Pets 2. So Secret Life of Pets was basically Toy Story with animals. Um, and, you know, while we're around, they do what we expect. And then the minute we're gone, they enter into these vibrant secret lives. Have you seen that YouTube thing of the cat barking at the window? Have you seen that? It's a cat and the window is going woof, 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 woof. And then somebody walks in the room and he goes, meow. So how, it's, how much was that dog that's in the window? The one with the waggly tail? Yeah. I don't know, but I do hope it's for sale. Yes. Yet another. One, one for the Down kids. with the kids. <laughs> yeah. They love all that. They just, you know. I've read about it. So they love that previous century <laughs> stuff. Okay, so it was yeah, fine, but it, you know it wasn't on a par with uh, Minions, um, of which Chris Renault was a was a co creator. So this time, Max's world is overturned. His owners have a baby. At first, he's horrified, but then gradually gradually comes to love the kid. Suddenly, starts to see danger everywhere. Once only to protect his kid, as he sees it, you know, because he's a dog, but it's his kid. The family take a trip to the country where they meet an old farm dog rooster who is laconically voiced by Harrison Ford, who teaches him to ease up. Meanwhile. There's kind of parallel plots involving variously a Pomeranian, a tiger, a rabbit, uh, Snowball voiced by Kevin Hart. Here's a clip. Let me tell you something. Anybody comes in here looking for trouble? Oh, they're going to meet my partners. I'm talking about Paul and Order. Ha! Uh-huh. Okay, well, you do know that your owner is just playing superhero, right? You're just wearing some superhero pajamas. Ha! Tiny dog, you're so naive. Point me in the direction of any animal who needs my help and stand back. <laughs> what? Help that blow. What the What? See, I think that's quite funny. I'm not sure whether it kind of comes across entirely on the uh, on the clip. You sort of have to be watching the thing. Anyway, so um, Louis C.K. before now, Patton Oswalt uh, for obvious reasons. And I, I, you know, I generally thought that this was a step up from the original. I thought the original was fine, but I wasn't, you know, I did feel very much like it's just Toy Story with animals. And in the case of this, first, the, the pace, I think, is rather better settled. Um, it's more even. Secondly, the gags felt less derivative and more like they'd found their own feet and their own their own rhythm and their own beat. Um, so while it's kind of incoherent in terms of, you know, parallel plotting, it was interesting. I was doing that cinema series for BBC Four and they're talking about the birth of parallel editing happening with the great train robbery and then you know nowadays we're so used to the idea of two stories going on in parallel but I've become kind of quite interested by how and particularly with superhero movies it's a very big deal how many you know balls can you keep juggling in the air at the same time in the case of this it it chuckled along and it's worth staying to the end because it's fun there you know it, there's gaggy stuff at the end of the thing and it was kind of it was kind of entertaining, and I actually thought that it was better than the first one, which I had, which I had failed to get with the first one. What was working for people, so I thought this was generally more even, and uh, you know, good voice performances. It's not, it's not Toy Story, and it's not Inside Out, and it's not any of those things, but it's a step up. I so, thought Simon Clifford on an email. Oh yes, I'm clearly on a different yellow brick road to you guys. I came out of Rocket Man in Wells with a relief; it was over. Really? Any film that starts with formation dancing and turns into Greece with better songs doesn't do it for me. Great story, overdone. Well, you know what starts with formation dancing and turns into Greece with better songs? Greece 2. 
there's always that. There is always that. One more just before you. Okay. Penny Forshaw. After last week's email on food in cinemas, my sister-in-law, Frances, recalled as a teenager in Glasgow in the 60s, working on the meat counter in a Woolworth store. I never knew Woolworth sold meat. There you go. But, okay, but is, it, is that in America? No, this that's in Glasgow. That's Glasgow. Is there still a, a Woolworths in Glasgow in, in 2016? Okay, I'll start again. After last week's email on food in cinemas, my sister-in-law, Frances, recalled as a teenager in Glasgow... Oh, I'm sorry. I bet, okay, fine. ...in the 1960s, Thanks, fine, okay. working on a meat counter... Fine, there we go. Okay. ...in a Woolworth store. I really am... A woman came in with a large collie dog, because dogs were then allowed in food stores, <laughs> and said, can I have some black... Pu- I'm not going to, you know, I'll just do the normal Yeah, please voices. don't do the voices. I'd like some black pudding, please. Well wrapped. We're going to the pictures. <laughs> so, going to the pictures... With a black pudding. With black pudding <clears throat> and a dog. There you go. You have to be impressed by that, don't you? Uh, Mayo at bbc.co.uk. What else is out? Okay, so... John McEnroe in the realm of perfection, which is a documentary that you would think from the title. Uh, John McEnroe? Is, well, it is about John McEnroe, but you would think it was about tennis, but it isn't. It's directed by Julian Farrow, and it is, it's been described as the greatest tennis film ever made, I think largely because it's not about tennis. It is about filmmaking. It is about what happens when somebody who makes a docu- makes documentaries about film about films becomes sort of, about tennis becomes sort of the subject of the documentary itself here's a clip you ask yourself while watching a horror film where do these phantom and hordes of ghosts come from That's before you realize that it's unwise to build your house on an old burial ground. A cemetery of a kind lies hidden underneath the red clay of the Roland Garros Stadium. It's called La Station Physiologique du Parc des Princes, and it is where Etienne Jules Marais and Georges Demny took their chronophotographic pictures. In other words, what the eyes could not see. The spectre of these first forays into capturing movement haunts the films of Gilles de Carmadec. So That's Gilles... really annoying. No, it's not, though. OK, so Gilles de Carmadec... Um, it <clears throat> it's, well... It's funny because there's a little bit of the undersea world of Jack's custard in there, isn't there? And there's a little. You think he was smoking a gauloise? I certainly hope so. And drinking a very, very strong coffee with a side order of iced water. Extravagantly French. So, um, Gilles de Carmadec was this filmmaker who was involved in making um, instructional tennis documentaries, and he realised that if you get somebody to to, to demonstrate a move on camera. They don't actually do it like they do it when they're playing tennis. And so he became, started shooting actual games to capture the way that real people played. And there was loads of footage, including an inordinate amount of footage of John McEnroe. And what we have here is uh, Julien Ferre going back and looking at the footage of John McEnroe and realising how much there was, and then constructing that into a film that, on the one hand, is about the way in which John McEnroe played tennis. Now, let's be clear. I know nothing about tennis. From the John McEnroe point of view, all I remember is the Super Brat stuff. I know he's now a very, very uh, respected commentator, but at the height of his 
you know, tennis career, he had that, that super brat image. And what this does is, it firstly, it takes the footage and finds something remarkable about the way in which McEnroe plays, the way in which he moves his body that is not the way that other players are moving the body, particularly in terms of serving. Um, it's hard to explain, but he serves in a way that looks completely different to the way that other people are serving. And there's a part of that commentary in which he says most people put the ball where the other player isn't. McEnroe puts the ball where the other player can't get, and which is kind of an interest. So from my point of view, I'm, in, I'm fascinated by that. But more importantly, what the film is about is the act of making a film about something and the idea that when you film something, the thing itself changes. Now, if you look at documentary filmmaking, you go back to Nanak of the North and how much documentary is, is you know, structured drama and how much documentary is because of the idea that actually no documentary is objective, all documentary is a created version of reality. In this, there's a lot of discussion about when you start filming tennis players, it changes what they do. And then what they do is you see courtside footage of the presence of the cameras affecting the players, particularly John McEnroe, who, as we learn through the course of the documentary, is finely attuned to everything that's around him. The documentary talks about the way in which he uses his outbursts of anger and his, his arguments with the referee are all part of a kind of controlling strategy also talks about the fact that and i never knew this you might know this when tom hulse was researching the role of amadeus mm -hmm. he looked at films of john McEnroe. did you know that i had no idea yeah well neither did i um of course it makes perfect sense that idea of the genius who also has a kind of an apparent vulgarity in public and what's the phrase you know I, i'm a vulgar man but my music is not and so as the documentary is looking at that sort of that courtside persona, the thing that we call Superbrat over here, it's actually saying, firstly, what he's doing physically is astonishing. Secondly, what he's doing is being affected by the cameras and by the sound men around him. And then this all moves to the uh, 1984 French Open, which, again, I didn't know anything about, but is a very, very famous uh, thing in his life, you know, uh, which he plays um, against uh, Ivan Lendl. And apparently it's a very famous match because it's one of those kind of reversal of fortune things. But the documentary uses the structure of making films about tennis to talk about what it means to make a documentary film, what you can capture on film with slow motion and, you know, capturing physical motion in a way that you couldn't do before. And that lovely thing about the ghost of the chronographic photography being in the background of all this and I'm I'm literally halfway through. I'm thinking this is riveting. This is a film about tennis, but what I'm really really fascinated by is that it's actually a film about filmmaking, about the relationship between documentary filmmaking and the object that is being filmed. And whilst I'm watching it, I am learning something I never thought I would know or understand or care about about why it was that McEnroe was was brilliant and why what he was doing was astonishing. I was really surprised. Believe me, no, I, I thought. It was a tennis documentary. It was so much more. Has it that. cooperated with it? Is it? Uh, it's no. It's archive. It's archive footage. Oh. So there's not his. You know. It's so. It's. It's basically. It's about that footage. It's about this tranche of footage, and what the footage has captured, and what capturing the footage meant. Does it have all that electro soundtrack running through it? I quite like that. I mean, it has music running through it, yes, but it has, I mean, it's true that when the narration began, I thought exactly as you thought, I'm going to last about five minutes with this. Yes. But you don't, because actually what it says is really fascinating. And uh, and, it, and, it, and it draws you in, because actually that that quiet, understated voice, 
really, really drew me in. Just a couple of minutes away from finding out that Rocket Man has been declared. <laughs> it's not up to me. That's up to him. So, uh, anything else to? All right. Let's very quickly do. In that case, I'll see if I can do this quickly. Uh, let's do to Too Late to Die Young, which is the second or third feature from Domingo Sotomayor uh, Castillo, depending on whether or not you count Mar as a feature, because it's kind of, it's not really feature length. So made Thursday till Sunday. Uh, won the Leopard for Best Direction at Locarno, which I think was a first. Returns again to the themes of parents and their relationship with an effect upon the kids. It's coming-of-age drama, uh, Chile, 1990, just after the fall of Pinochet. Pinochet, we were cor- was corrected, wasn't it? That's Really? No, well, whatever. Hang on, my, my pronunciation. Like, if I were you. Yeah, fine. Okay, so open to, it's partly inspired by the director's own experiences of growing up in an alternative ecological community. Opens in a commune out in the woods. Um, below the Andes. There's a whiff of Captain Fantastic about it. There's a teenage, there's some teenagers, but central teenager who is living in this thing because this is what their parents have got this alternative lifestyle, you know, musicians, artisans, and the parents dither and, you know, talk about whether or not to get electricity and there's a problem with the water supply and all this sort of stuff. Meanwhile, there is a coming of age drama happening, which the parents are not quite noticing. 16 year old Sophia wants to escape. She currently lives with her father in this commune. She wants to go live with her mother, who's a musician who lives in the city. And her friend, Lucas, whose voice realizes that they they're growing apart, and the characters are kind of coming of age. There's a sense that their coming of age is to do with the country's coming of age as well. Although all the politics are very much implied rather than you know sort of specifically pointed out. What I liked about it is again, it's that classic thing. It's a film in which gestures say more than words. It's to do with looks and it's to do with silences rather than swathes of, of, of dialogue that explains what's going on. I know some people have found it a little too elliptical, but I didn't have a problem with that at all. It also has a beautiful balance of inner worlds and outer worlds, what's happening inside somebody's, you know, experience of the world and what's happening in the world around them. There's a very nice uh, sense of that disjunct between the way something appears and the way it is. This looks like an idyllic community, but there's a problem with the water. There's poison in the water there's a dog that goes missing in strange circumstances there's strange mistrusts everywhere Sophia is brilliantly played by uh Demian Hernandez and I thought it was I mean I thought it was a really intriguing piece of work I I know that some people have thought it was a, a little slow but I it's a mood piece it's one of those things in which you have to just let the mood of the film you know pull you in right okay what's that called again uh it's called Too Late to Die Young Okay, so uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Uh, Mark, your movie of the week is Rocket Man! Okay, well, that's lovely to finish like that. I'm going to have a massage. How are we doing with the kids? Are we doing good? We're doing very good. Are our figures good with the kids? I te- do you know, Just, our radars were up. Do you know what the they kids- were up? 100 and whatever it is. How much? 100 listeners. 100 listeners. <laughs> you know? And they were all young. Do you know? What? What the music style that the kids are really uh, moving and a groove into at the moment. Grime. It's shanties, uh, which is jolly good because here's John the Albany Shantyman. Dear Whinging and Pom, greetings from the only church member in southwestern Australia, the one that missed Simon when he was in Albany earlier in the year. It has come to my attention that a sequel to the Fisherman's Friends movie has been given the go ahead. Yes, I And I've it's going to be filmed in, here in Australia. In Oz, yeah. Notwithstanding that the British films that take their protagonists on holiday are by and large terrible, I think that this movie should be filmed here in Albany and here's why. As I mentioned before, Albany has become a bit of a movie and TV hotspot with three major Australian movies having been filmed here, along with... But... (laughs) Sir! Oh, I just... 
Puppet Master just turned to Sophie and said, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? Uh, but the real reason <laughs> is that Albany hosted Australia's first ever shanty festival over Easter and has a thriving sea shanty scene with two groups, the Albany Shantymen and the Shanty Lilies, singing regularly in pubs around town. If you could wield the power of wittertainment to lobby for Albany to be the location for this movie, we would be eternally grateful and probably write a shanty in your honour. Well, that's how about that? I, this is a very cool musical style. Do you know that one of the? Can we have a shanty? A, the Wittertainment shanty. Yeah, one of the last films that Ken Russell made was a short film of all the verses of "Twas on the Good Ship Venus." You really should have seen us. Exactly. And that's enough before the birdsong arbiter kicks in. I, I've never heard of that song anyway. <laughs> Well, the Ken Russell version had many of the... I mean, apparently there is infinite number of, of verses to I, that song. Yeah, it was the rugby club at university. Yeah. What a surprise. Yeah. That, that well-behaved crowd of mature men. Mm. Um, William in Bristol. As a thematic link to the recent email regarding underwater boyfriends and loneliness. This is uh, from last week. Yeah. I would like to praise the power of the email section of your programme. I'm a short-term emailer, uh, still learning all the running gags and references... Recently, I had an unexpected gap year thrust upon me due to uni allocation complications. With all my friends heading off on glamorous adventures with almost sinisterly attractive new friends, I've been left somewhat on my own for the time being. This would bring me very low were it not for the fact of the wonderful emails. It's amazing how much listening to total strangers' thoughts and experiences can remind you that the world is not cold and empty, but warm and full of wonderful people. Thank you, William, for a wonderful email. Just before our DB... Oh, you've got a little review to do, haven't you? Well, I was just going to mention XY Chelsea, if that's yeah, all right why, with why you. Why do you mention XY Chelsea next? Okay, so um, I, I'll just quickly talk about XY Chelsea, if that's all right then. So XY Chelsea is a XY documentary Chelsea. about um, about Chelsea Manning, and uh, who was in prison from 2010 to whenever it was, 2017, for uh, leaking classified information that was then released in unredacted form on WikiLeaks. Everyone knows the background to this. So this was made by British artist filmmaker Tim Hawkins, who apparently started it as a very different project, apparently started it as a project about prisoners who were unfilmable and wrote to Manning to ask if, you know, if she would cooperate. And she, they started corresponding. And then, of course, Obama commuted the sentence so he's there when the the commuting happens and he's there with the legal team when they find out that Chelsea Manning is going to get out. So the doc has her team getting the news, making arrangements for her to be taken, for, you know, to follow as she comes out, to be taken to a safe house to decompress, which is a woodland retreat. And this is the first time she's been out after, you know, this lengthy uh, imprisonment. Here's a clip. I could hear the river from uh, prison on a non-windy day because uh, there was... The Missouri River, right outside the, uh, right outside the, right outside the prison itself, through the tree. If you go beyond the tree line of the prison, there's the river. So, but I haven't heard a stream like this. This is just, it's nice. It's nice to have a stream. It's nice to have leaves, you know. Where would you start the story? What story? Your story. Uh, that's a good question. So the film sort of starts its story with uh, Chelsea Manning coming out and then finding her feet, recalling her life inside, which sounds horrendous, and then adjusting to life outside, preparing to face the media, 
getting a social media profile. X Y Chelsea is her Twitter handle. That's where that title comes from. Um, at one point on Twitter, somebody tells her, you know, you should be shot. To which she replies, I was shot for Vogue, which I thought was actually a really good answer. Good. Um, starts campaigning under the, the slogan, we got this. Um, ends up running for Senate. And, of course, recently held again because, you know, to testify to grand, refusing to testify to, to a grand jury in relation to the most recent case. And actually, the film ends with this suggestion that they're never going to let this go. And actually, of course, recent events have added a particular, um, you know, ominous air to that, that particular claim. I think what's the best way to describe the documentary is by what it isn't. It's not the story of WikiLeaks or Julian Assange much as I know he wants to be the centre of every story, it's not about him or about WikiLeaks. It's not the story of gender confirmation surgery. It is um, it is a story of uh, Chelsea Manning uh, and her identity and who she is and who she's always been and how she got to be the person at the middle of this extraordinary um, you know, storm of events. It is the story of um, you know, somebody who finds themselves at the centre of something which, yes, they got there, you know, through their own actions. I mean, she talks very much about she had decided that she wanted the information to be out there and the way in which it got out there was a secondary consideration. But it's also, fascinatingly, a portrait of somebody who has been in confinement, coming out into a world which has changed. And, I mean, at times it's at times it's very heartbreaking. At times it's kind of quite quite amusing and, and funny at time it, it, it's always very i mean it's funny because we talked about the the john mcenroe documentary which talks about the way in which cameras change the subject and i thought what i liked about this documentary was it it does it does try to sort of retain a distance to 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 view its subject and the events around her with a you know with with, with a non-intrusive eye but also to to give her a voice and uh yeah, I thought it was. A, I thought it was a well a well made documentary about somebody finding their place in a world which from which they were excluded for a very long time. It's called X Y Chelsea. Okay, here's a, an email from Ellie Graham in Stocksfield. Okay, who is ten years old. Hello, Ellie, and is a medium term listener and a first time emailer. Thank you for writing. Ellie says, "I'm writing to inform you about a freaky coincidence that took place." During the podcast last week. Freaky coincidences are our favourite. I listen to your podcast at least three times a week as I drift off, says Ellie. Yeah, that's another thing. We yeah. send people to sleep. I couldn't see. There are lots of courses that you can go on, lots of uh, medication that people, you know, you can't sleep. But Just really, put come out of Mayo on, you'll be snoring in five seconds. I couldn't sleep. So I settled down for the third time last week to listen to your podcast, but I couldn't sleep still. So I got a book out and it just happened to be the Guinness World Book of Records. Or the Guinness Book of World Records. And then this was just, I'd read a page as you started talking about the Guinness World Record book. Slightly different. I finally got an excuse to email you, so I took it. And hello to Jason. Hello. So anyway, so Ellie, thank you for waiting for the moment to get in touch. And we appreciate your listening. Thank you very much. Do they still make those books? I mean, do they physically make them anymore? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it used to be a thing you would get given them as a Christmas present or a birthday present. It was like a big annual. We, we talked about this last week. No, I know we did. I, I haven't forgotten that. Yes. It, somebody may not have listened last week. Well, they could all... <laughs> Previously on Twin Peaks. It only, yeah, the 1999 is the bestseller. Yeah, that's the most interesting one, big silver one with me in it. 
all the others. And you're, is that the one that you're in for the longest ever? That's yeah, that's the one. Anyway, I know the puppet master is getting very, very twitchy because why? Because he thinks we've done all this before. Oh, all right, sorry. And also, he loves this particular piece of music. Light orchestral, I'd say. <laughs> the electric light orchestral. Is that right? Well, hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Or should I say, hey, friends, hey, Romans, hey, countrymen, lend me your ears. Tell me, Mark, what have you got on your Walkman this week? <laughs> OK. Because I've been listening to this Roman band. Yes, Roman. They're called Fatum Autem Puer, a girl group from around the 3rd and 4th centuries BC. The name translates roughly as Destiny's Child. When they split up, it was pretty messy. Do you know what band members... <laughs> Michelle Brutus, Williamus and Kelly Cassius Rowland said to their fellow bandmate when the band split up in 44 BC? No. A2, Beyoncé. It, it, it literally was the whole of that to get to that gag. That's, you that's, should have a word. That's just Between you, you should discuss it before you give... I mean, me. seriously, you tell me off for doing stuff that we did apparently last week, and then that's... That gets through. Anyway. Anyway, all of which <laughs> indicates the 1970 film version of William Shakespeare's banger, Julius Caesar, banger. <laughs> gets a Blu-ray release next week. So will that win the coveted title of DVD of the Week? Or will Burning, Destroyer, or even Gonks Go Beat... Gonks Go Beat is good. ...emerge victorious? Adam S. Leslie. Burning was a revelation for me when I caught it a few weeks ago. A strange, haunting, mesmerising film which doesn't leave you for days after you've seen it. Not quite a thriller, not quite a drama. Something occupying... Why have you gone into that voice? ...a dreamlike space in between, alongside One Cut of the Dead, also from East Asia, and the tonal polar opposite, contender for my film of the year. I'm hoping this will be Mark's choice too. Ben J. Oram. I was expecting a jingoistic, flag-waving, hoorah war film, but Black Hawk Down had character, a touch of pathos, with a surprisingly strong ensemble cast, including Jason Isaac. Yeah, it does. Yes, it does have lots of explosions, but there's substance that makes it resonate more than your usual military action fest. Johnny Andrews says, Burning left you guessing until the very end. I'm still guessing. But I'd have to go for Nicole Kidman's almost unrecognisable performance in Destroyer. Mark will go for Burning, I think. John Page, I'm going for The Big Clock, the movie that inspired No Way Out. What is our DVD of the week? Well, I think, actually, it's going to be a doubleheader again. Is it really? Yeah. What's it going to be? Well, Burning, definitely, because it's really brilliant. Burning? Yeah. And I think Destroyer, because... You know, I thought that, that Nicole Kidman was really terrific in it, but more importantly, I thought it was like a really well-directed film. It's Karen Kasama, and it got completely overlooked at awards uh, season, and it shouldn't have been. So, Burning yes. and Destroyer. I think you've been particularly good, Mark, whatever the puppet master. You know, I think, it com- I think it comes down to the quality of the films, and I think in this particular case... All hail the mighty Fletch. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? Should we finish Next. with a medley of our favourite songs? I say the best thing about Dexter Fletcher is he still he still looks like the most shambolic. I mean, he's you know clearly he can do all this fantastic stuff. He nearly ran me over on a bike in Soho, and it looked like Wurzel Gummidge on a bike. How long ago was this? Oh, a few years ago now. I think when he just made Sunshine on Leaf. Oh, okay. And he was wearing like literally he was wearing like stripy scarecrow trousers, and his hair was all over the place. 
And he was riding around Soho on a bike, and he thought, this is a fantastically successful filmmaker. So Edith and Clarice are here next week, and uh, they will do a fabulous job. Uh, but obviously then we're back the week after that. To and mess it, it all up again. It doesn't matter for podcasters, but we are on three till five. It's kind of like a revolution in my head, really, because we've been two to four, like, forever. And now we've got to change it, but it will be the same in the podcast. Is it a revolution of the heart? No. Is it a total eclipse of the heart? Yes, that is actually... Are you living in a powder keg and giving off sparks? Did you see me on Top of the Pops last week, 1987? No. Yeah. What, who did you introduce? Oh, I don't know. It was all fantastic. But it was, I think the Proclaimers were on, actually. I think that's probably oh, wow. what, what the link was. Blue striped shirt. Me and Peter Powell. Wow. Stripes were in. Anyway, I'm going to alert you if I'm on next time because... Yeah, send me a... T- is, was it, was it on, is it on BBC Four? Something like that, Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you very much, Deep, for listening. Thank you very much, Deep, for taking part in the show. You've been great. Are you talking to me? You're talking to me. Are you, are you talking to me? Are you thanking Have me? Have a lovely holiday. Are thank you thanking you. me on for being on the show that's my job? Yes. Thank you for yeah. contributing. I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, yes, that's right. I'm going to see you tomorrow. Yeah, OK. Do you, you want to tell them what it is and they'll have to cut it out? Yes. BBC Radio 5 Live. 